Lo, the winter is past, the rain is over and gone, the flowers appear on the earth, the time of the singing of birds has come, and the voice of the turtle is heard in our land. Throws across his body, and he got him! Looking away, McCann around third, throw from the outfield is up the line, inside the park home run! He gone! And he makes a catch up against the wall. And he's going to watch it fly. Strike three called. He got him on strikes. Welcome to the Voice of the Turtle, a podcast feature of the Bless You Boys website. That's SB Nation's Detroit Tigers blog. You can find us on the web at www.blessyouboys.com, on Twitter at Bless You Boys, and on Facebook at facebook.com slash byb.tigers. I'm your host, Hook Slide, along with my partner, Rob Rojacki, and I'm really curious to know, Rob, if I mail it in for this episode, can I get sent home early? <laughs> that would be, uh, that'd be nice for you, but if, you <laughs> if, but if you get sent home early, who's going to record and post this thing? I guess the question is, which of the two of us can mail it in faster and get sent home more quickly? Oh, challenge accepted. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> and, and 30 seconds later, the podcast ends, because we both just give up Uh yeah i think our guests and listeners would really really appreciate that uh yeah all right let's put this episode in gear and get this sucker on the road we're going to talk about how to humiliate the twins what the tigers will face in the al central in 2016 national lampoon's rondone vacation we'll answer some listener questions and we'll also be talking with whitecaps play-by-play announcer dan hasty about the recently crowned championship winning west michigan whitecaps But before we do all that, it's time for an epic bat flip and a home run jog. We'll talk about the fact that at least the Tigers are winning championships somewhere. That's up next in our Rounding the Bases segment. 6-210-pound righty delivers as a fly ball left field. This one's deep. This one's got a chance. And this ball is gone a home run. Ian Kinsler delivers the walkoff. Number six for Ian. He rounds third. Heads into the mob scene at home. And the Tigers take the series from KC. A walk-off home run from Kinsler. Eight to six. All right, let's go rounding the bases. At least the Tigers are winning championships somewhere, Rob. But uh, before we start talking about what that means... This is kind of an odd situation, I think, for us. Uh, normally, we record midweek, and then with uh, the, with the Whitecaps getting into the championship series last week, I was unavailable midweek, so we had to push our recording back to Sunday. The end result of that is here it is Thursday, September the 24th, and um, <laughs> it's, it's interesting to have a let's look back at the past week segment when, in fact, there have only been like four games, and it was all with one team, so... <laughs> Uh, this is this is going to be fun to fill out this segment. The Tigers dropped a doubleheader to the White Sox on uh, Monday. It, it was kind of a sad situation. The offense just died. Uh, Jeff Samarja threw a Maddox, uh, a complete game shutout against the team in less than 100 pitches. But at least, well, <laughs> I was going to say, they, they gained an edge in the protect the pick contest, but uh, they kind of wrecked that, didn't they, by coming back and winning the next two games. They were doing so well. <laughs> They were doing so well in losing these games and and conserving that top 10 pick, and then they had to go out and play good baseball 
over the last two days, although you can kind of debate on whether it was actually good baseball. But anyways, um, yeah, they won the last couple games of the series, um, almost throwing a combined no-hitter on Tuesday uh, before new closer Neftali Feliz uh, blew that sucker at the, in the ninth inning. Uh, but they came back to win that one in the bottom of the tenth. And then uh, on Wednesday, yesterday during the day game, Justin Verlander had a pretty good outing. Uh, I haven't had to had a chance to to see the game yet but he had another another great outing touching 99 miles an hour mm-hmm. in one of the later innings which is very very encouraging um and one thing i'm looking at right now i'm on baseball reference looking at this week's games all four games under three hours how about that well i mean that's something to be happy about right if you have to watch relatively bad baseball it's good to get it over with quickly um i'm surprised really the tuesday game even the one that uh, they went into extra innings that was under three hours well, they were throwing a no-hitter, so it's not yeah, like they had true. any guys on base at the time. And Alfredo Simon wasn't pitching, so things weren't <laughs> going slowly, which was nice. Yeah, I think that's the uh, the kicker right there, is that Alfredo Simon did not pitch in the series. So none of those games had to take 12 hours to play. You know, it's, it's funny because for only having like four games you know, worth of stuff to talk about here, that, that was it was an interesting series. The, the, again, going back to the first game of the doubleheader, when Jeff Samarja threw his Maddox through a one-hitter against the Tigers, they, I mean, the offense just seemed to be non-existent that day. It really did, and I kind of had a feeling that Jeff Samarja was going to come out and do that. Uh, he had been pitching horribly lately. I believe his ERA was up over nine in the second half before that start, and for whatever reason, I just felt like, you know what, that is going to be the day that he comes out and shuts someone down, uh, and he did. And it really is, and I, I read a great post over at Southside Sox, the White Sox blog, um, and their site editor, Jim Margulis, posted a post about Jeff Samarja showing you know other teams a new side of him down the stretch here. Um, Samarja is a pending free agent. He is uh, probably going to you know make a pretty decent amount of money, although this year I think is really kind of less than that contract. I don't think he's going to get the same $150 million that some of these other guys are. Uh, but to still see him go out and pitch that well, uh, I think was a good sign for him. As for the Tigers' offense, not so much, but I kind of want to take the other side of the coin of this um, and talk about how well Kyle Ryan pitched. Hmm. Uh, he seems to have this kind of hold over the, over the White Sox. Uh, every time he goes out against them, he's made like three or four starts already against the White Sox and pitched pretty well against them overall. Uh, but it was, it was nice to see him and the rest of the pitching staff have a pretty good day there, even though the offense didn't. So can we turn Kyle Ryan into a, a White Sox specialist? You know, we kind of have like left-handed one-out guys, the Loogies. Maybe Kyle Ryan can be a, a I don't know, a, a Woogie? Maybe? That acronym doesn't really work out. But Well, the S is silent. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> As it should be, following a yeah. W. I, I don't know. Uh, the The issue with Samarda, I guess, I, I find this really interesting because, like you said, he's not been pitching well this year up until this point. And yet, y- you look back to the fact that uh, Billy Bean and the Oakland A's went out and got him at the trade deadline last year as part of their big push to collect all the aces available and hoping to make a, you know, a division uh, title drive there at the, at the all-star break last year at the trade deadline rather. And uh, I look at that and I think there's a reason why they did that. Jeff Samarge is not a bad pitcher. He's having a bad year. And I think he showed some flashes of that, uh, you know, against the Tigers on Monday. It, it, for me, it raises the question, is Jeff Samarja the kind of guy that maybe the Tigers should look at picking up in 2016? 
I definitely think there's a possibility there. I haven't looked too closely at uh, Samarja's kind of peripheral numbers. I know that his strikeout rate has gone down a little bit, but he's also posting a pretty good walk rate. Um, I'll have to take a look and see like if his velocity is down or if there's anything going on like that. Um, maybe it's just a matter of him pitching and you know kind of a pitcher friendly ball in a hitter friendly ballpark i should say he's given up more home runs this season than any other year in his career but at the same time he's thrown 200 innings for the third year in a row uh and his you know his peripheral numbers are still his uh fielding independent pitching fip is still better than his era so it's definitely possible that you know hey maybe maybe this is just one bad year he's only 30 years old and isn't going to get you know the six seven year contract that some of these other guys are so if you want to kind of go for he's sort of a buy low candidate but i still think he's going to make you know a decent amount of money he's probably going to get close to you know 12 13 14 million a year but it may be only be for three or four years instead of six or seven like some of these other guys are i mean it sounds like it's possible that he could benefit from pitching in a pitcher friendly park like comerica Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, what pitcher wouldn't? Uh, <laughs> True. <laughs> so. Alfredo Simon, that's who. <laughs> oh, yeah. Jeez. Um, but, you know, Samarja is the kind of guy that you think would be, would kind of benefit from that. Um, despite throwing 200 plus innings in, in the last few years, uh, you'd like to think he's kind of got a relatively mileage free arm. Um, he pitched in college a little bit, but he also played football at Notre Dame. So you wonder if that kind of cut into some of his inning totals, some of his workload there. And he may just be kind of one of those guys with a little bit less mileage on his arm than some of these other free agent starters coming in the market. And I would love to be able to contribute to the discussion in terms of his stats. But the fact of the matter is I can't find him on baseball reference because I can't spell his last name. And I don't think anybody can. So if I ever get that figured out, maybe I'll be able to actually look up his stats and uh, and I'll have something to say about his peripherals. But yeah, you got to start with being able to smell, spell Samarja. I think this is why the White Sox just referred to him as Shark. It's just so much easier. Maybe well, Shark, is, Shark has been his nickname all along. And uh, I think my favorite thing was after the A's traded for him last year, their fans over uh, at the O.co Coliseum, kind of a great group of fans out there, uh, they had this sign that, you know, they had all these different spelling of his names. And there were like four or five of them in a row. All of them crossed out. And at the bottom in big, bold letters, it just says shark. <laughs> so I'll have to find that. That's a, that's a fantastic picture and a great sign for whoever thought of that. Yeah, I'm guessing that he picked up the shark nickname rather early in his life. Because if you've got a last name like Samarja and there's like 18 consonants in a row, most of which are silent, and some of them which make sounds that they're not supposed to make when they're pushed together like that. Yeah, you got to have a nickname at that point. That's just that's a rough that's a rough way to go through life with a last name like that. Uh, I want to talk too about that Tuesday game um, when they were when the Tigers were throwing a combined no hitter. Actually, it was a perfect game at one point. I think they took that perfect game into the sixth inning. I'm going on on memory here. The one thing I, that I think is worth kind of delving into. It was Daniel Norris pitching that night. He had a perfect game going. Uh, I understand that he's on an innings limit. I understand that. I understand the reasonings for pulling him out of that game. I was still just a little bit irritated that he got pulled. And I I thought, I mean, really, come on. What's an extra three, four innings on the guy's arm? If he's got something that special going on, you know, presumably if he's going to continue throwing a perfect game or if he's going to actually throw the no-hitter, he's going to face a minimum number of batters anyway. It's not like he's you know, putting extra stress on the arm, having to go through the lineup six, seven times or whatever in those last couple innings. So let him pitch. If he gives up the hit, you know, or whatever, and breaks up the no-hitter, then then go get him. Or am I way off base? 
Well, I think the reason they pulled him was more because of a pitch limit. Um, after his little DL stint for his strained oblique he suffered back in August, uh, the Tigers have kind of had him on a pitch number limit. Um, usually with a guy like this, you'd see him throwing these starts in the minor leagues. You know, he'd make a start in AA for 60 pitches and then AAA for 80 pitches or something along those lines. But with the minor league season over, he doesn't have the chance to do that. So the Tigers are giving him a chance to kind of pitch against, you know, major league hitters and everything, uh, and limiting the number of pitches that he throws in order to not stress the oblique, not stress his arm too much. And I get it. Um, it would have been, yeah, I agree. The fan in me definitely wants to see Norris go out there and continue facing guys. Um, you know, he was throwing a perfect game at the time, and through those five innings, th- the White Sox had no chance. You know, you'll see some of these guys, you know, work three, four, five no-hit innings, and guys are making hard contact, but he's getting a little bit lucky. Like, no, Norris was just throwing absolute smoke, and the White Sox would not, were not able to catch up with it. Uh, so it would have been it would have been nice to see him continue pitching. You know, maybe he gets to face uh, a few more batters, and if he allows a hit, then you can pull him. But uh, I get why they did it too. And you gotta you gotta protect that guy's arm for you know the next five six years he's going to be here. So I guess my point though is I'll ask you this as a medical professional. I know they're trying to protect the you know the injury, the oblique, and that sort of thing. But I guess that's what I was just saying is it assuming that he continues to throw the perfect game or even a no hitter. You would think that means he's facing a minimum number of batters. He's throwing a minimum number of pitchers. Is that really going to stress the muscles that much? I think if you go out and have him throw 120 pitches, yes. Um, He threw 63 pitches on Tuesday. Um, If he gets up to kind of the 80-90 range, I think they would have been okay. But I would have been a little bit iffy with anything over 100, uh, given the number of pitches, or I guess the, the lack of pitches that he threw in his previous start when he only won a handful of innings. Okay. All right. I mean, it's it, it's neither here nor there, I guess. It's just one of those things that you kind of go, how often do you get a chance to throw a no-hitter? That that seems like that's a maybe once in a, or twice you know, in a career opportunity. Maybe not. Maybe Dana Norris is good enough that he'll get many, many more opportunities to do that. We, I guess we'll have to wait and see how that you know, how that unfolds. Uh, as far as the Wednesday game goes, you know, I know you said you didn't get a chance to watch it. That was the one that I actually went to. Had really, really awesome seats. Uh, that was just, that was an unreal experience to sit that close to watch Verlander doing his thing. He looked phenomenal. I mean, you talk about, we were, uh, my son and I were watching his his velocity through the whole game, you know, watching the scoreboard number pop up. And in the early parts of that game, he was hitting, you know, usually 90, 91, couple of 92s, you know, maybe he touched 93. But when he got down to that that seventh inning, I, I told my son, I'm like, you, you watch. He's, this is what Verlander does. This is the last inning. He's getting close to the 100 pitch count. He's mm-hmm. going to start really dialing it up. And sure enough, 96, 97. Of course, we're cheering every time, you know, like, there's 97. Woo! You know, <laughs> to see him hit 99, I don't recall the last time I saw JV hit 99 on the gun. You got to think that it was back in 2012, 2013, something right. like that. He definitely wasn't hitting that same velocity band last year um, and hasn't really gotten that high this year. I don't know what it says about going forward. Maybe he was just feeling really good that day. Maybe the stadium gun was a little little hot for whatever reason. Um, but it's definitely encouraging. And to hear him talk about it the way he did afterward, you really got to be encouraged going forward. Um, he's come out, you know, after a few shaky-ish outings, uh, I will say. I guess shaky by his 
old slash very new standards. Um, to he- see him come out and dominate both the Royals and the White Sox in consecutive starts is encouraging. And I really hope that he does kind of finish the year strong, uh, give you know one or two more great outings before the end of the season. Yeah, as far as, you know, shaky or the command issues or whatever, it seemed like from my vantage point, you know, kind of behind home plate where we were sitting, it seemed like he might have been getting squeezed a little bit. I don't know. That's that's just the eye test. I would have to go back and look at like the Brooks baseball data and see exactly where those pitches were landing. But it certainly felt like he was getting pinched a little bit. In fact, he, he had a little bit of a, a blow up at the umpire uh, after Melky Cabrera hit his home run that that had followed on. I can't even remember who it was that was batting before him. Um, doesn't matter. Point is, he had walked that batter on a couple of very, very close pitches, borderline, that he felt he should have got the strikeout. Instead, he got the walk, and I, I think he might have, I don't know, overcorrected himself, and he grooved one to Melky Cabrera. But after he hit that home run, uh, I, I watched Verlander come off the mound, come right down towards the umpire, put his glove over his mouth, and <laughs> so he couldn't read his lips. He was... Uh, he had some words for the umpire that we later heard. I don't know if you, you saw that, but uh, it's on the MLB site. If you get the condensed version of the game where there's nothing but park noises going on, you can actually hear him cursing out the umpire and going, hey, come Ooh. on, man, you're squeezing me, you know, give me a break, you know, and all this kind of stuff. So very cool to see um, just the, that's a version of Verlander that, like I said, we haven't seen in a while. And, and for a game this late in the season, it's a meaningless game, but like the comp- the, the competitiveness, I guess, that, you know, even in the seventh inning, he was dialing it up. He was angry about getting pinched. It wasn't just a, hey, whatever, it doesn't matter. We're up by, you know, three, four runs or whatever. Just very fun game to see. Um, but, yeah, like like you were saying, Rob, I think that's that's a pretty good sign going forward for, for next year, assuming he can stay healthy in the offseason. Well, with him, I think this is kind of I, – I think that the health concerns are a little bit overblown. Um, he had the, I'm trying to think of what was first, the core muscle surgery, I believe was during like an injury he suffered during the off season doing yeah. something. Yeah. Uh, I don't know what it is with tigers and off season injuries between him and Victor Martinez. We've had enough to last a lifetime. It seems. You're doing it wrong. Um, and then he had a little bit of a shoulder issue in 2014 because I think they said he was compensating for his weak core. Um, so that kind of makes sense. And then this year he had that little bit of a tricep strain that kind of lasted longer than a lot of people thought. Um, you know, I don't really know what that one was about. Maybe that's kind of a, you know, maybe that's something to be worried about going forward. But at the same time, this is a guy that's been on the disabled list once in his career. Uh, in an 11-year or 10-year career, he had a couple starts in 2005 that I guess don't really count. Um so to be on the disabled list one time during that and to throw 200 innings eight times in a row, I think we can kind of rest easy this offseason, although I feel like most Tigers fans won't be. Right, and I think that's just because of the recent kind of the cumulative effect, I guess. It's it's maybe an injury mirage, but to have, like you just enumerated, the, the core muscle, then there was the shoulder, and then there was the triceps, and it, they all kind of came one after the other, I think kind of creates that feeling of, okay... Is, is this just kind of a fluke, you know, that these all kind of... But like you said, they were all connected. So it, it does for me, it doesn't necessarily say he's now on this weird injury, you know, collection, whatever. Moving on from the Tigers, uh, the other big thing that happened this week is that the West Michigan Whitecaps, the single-A farm affiliate for the Tigers, uh, on Monday night, 
won the championship title against the Cedar Rapids Colonels out of Iowa. That's the Minnesota Twins affiliate, so... <laughs> Suck it, Twins. Suck it, Twins. It was it was a big deal. Uh, this was the sixth championship title that the Whitecaps have won in the 21 years that they've kind of been in existence and associated with the Tigers. Uh, they've only made six trips to the championship in that time, and they are apparently now undefeated in those trips. Uh, they, they were able to win in the, the fifth and final deciding game, taking the series three games to two. It was a stressful game. I'm not going to lie. The, uh, the Colonels had the lead until the fifth. The Whitecaps came back for three runs to take a three to two lead. Their starting pitcher was was having some trouble, Ross Seaton. Uh, he got them through, I think, six innings, and then they turned it over to the bullpen. And wouldn't you know it, a regularly solid, strong, dependable bullpen got into a little bit of trouble a couple of times putting the tying and winning runs on base. It was uh, it was a nail-biter, Rob, but they, they did it. They pulled it out. It was. Uh, that first... That was probably the first game, first minor league game that I've ever listened to on the radio. Uh, I pulled up a stream for game five on my computer as I was uh, kind of sort of maybe paying a little bit of attention to the Tigers. Uh, By the end of the game, I pretty much had all of my attention on the Whitecaps and Twitter and hoping that the Whitecaps pulled it out. Uh, But yeah, those those last few innings were a little hairy um, to, you know, have a reliever come in and uh, followed immediately by your tweet that said, oh, this is a great bullpen, we should be fine. <laughs> and then to have him, I think, walk two guys before getting the final out of the inning was entertaining. And then the next inning, another walk or two uh, before another guy escaping a jam. And then even Joe Jimenez, the, the Whitecaps' excellent closer, uh, walked a batter before striking out a couple more guys to, to finish it out. Just so classic Tiger bullpen, right? I mean, these guys are they're, they're primed. They'll, they'll fit right in to that. They're to- they're they're working towards it. you know they're they're succeeding a little bit too much right now but with a little bit more seasoning they will be able to fully <laughs> tigers bullpen by the time they reach the majors. It's like no stop, stop watching what the parent club is doing. Do not mimic this. It's it's better if you don't. So uh, it's it was a it was a kind of a crazy season for the Whitecaps in that they finished the first half of the season. Uh, with a record, a club record under 500, they were 33 and 36 at the end of the first half. I think they got some major contributions from the 2015 draft class. In Kristen Stewart, uh, Cade Civic, their catcher, made some some big important contributions as their cleanup hitter. Uh, Trey Teekle, uh, one of the pitchers, uh, filled in in long relief, and their new shortstop AJ Simcox uh, put on quite the offensive show. I thought in in his uh, you know, little bit of time there in the second half. So what, I guess, what, Rob, what I'm thinking is that when I look at the contributions of the 2015 draft class and, and helping the Whitecaps to go from a sixth place team to division or league champions at the end of the year, I, I that's component number one. I add that to the fact that they're about to get a top 10 draft pick in 2016, assuming that they tank the right way, as we've talked about. Those two things combined, I, I guess... To me, it raises the question, is is there really, in fact, hope for the farm system? You'd really like to think so. Uh, and a couple other factors that play into this, uh, the trades at the trade deadline this year, acquiring guys like Daniel Norris, Matt Boyd, guys who have probably already exhausted their quote-unquote prospect status. Um, other guys like Michael Fulmer, uh, I know Luis Sessa and Jairo Laborte are the, the other two guys that don't get a lot of a lot of attention in those trades, but they could turn it into something, too. Uh, to get those guys along with a couple of the other 
guys that you didn't mention from last year's draft class. Bo Burrows, I believe, was named one of the top prospects in the Gulf Coast League by Baseball America earlier today. Um, and he was the Tigers' actual first-round pick. Um, to get some, you know, a little bit more contribution out of some of those guys, I think there is some hope going forward. I think we'll see the Tigers make a pretty substantial jump in minor league rankings uh, towards the start of next year. I don't think they're going to be a top farm system by any means, but they may jump from dead last into the, you know, maybe 15 to 20 range or something along the, uh, some somewhere in there. So that's a pretty big jump in just one year. And I think that the you know as as this system matures and if they have another great draft in 2016, you know you could really see them start to shoot up those rankings and you know uh, beefing up the pipeline a little bit. It just kind of raises some questions, I guess, about the the ongoing narrative. I guess you know the Tigers' farm system sucks. It just sucks. It's depleted. It's been bad for a long time. And that's to me, I feel like that's mostly based on the fact that hey, they have not been ranked you know very highly by these national ranking systems. And I kind of look at that, I guess, and say, okay, maybe we need to adjust what we consider a good farm system because yeah, maybe it's true that they haven't drafted the next Mike Trout or the next Clayton Kershaw or, you know, some of these, you know, big names that are coming up and immediately making huge impacts, the guys that are going to become perennial all-stars. I feel like, yeah, that's that's going to be the case when you have a winning ball club that doesn't get to draft very high in the process. You, you end up with a lot of low picks. I don't know, like, what do you expect? I, I kind of almost want to reevaluate it and say, yeah, but if they have people that are, that are able to come up players that are able to come up out of the draft and in a couple of years, get to the ball club and maybe not be all-stars, but you know, solid contributors at least, does that make an okay farm system? I think it does. Um, I know that some prospect rankings do get a little bit uh, enamored with some of the tools that players have and high upside and things like that. But at the same time, the Tigers haven't had a lot of contributions from some of these role players. I mean, you've had, you know, other than your last two starting catchers and James McCann and Alex Avila, the Tigers haven't gotten a ton out of their farm system. I mean, you've got, you know, a, a couple years from a guy like Andy Dirks, a couple years from Brennan Bosch. Uh, you know, you have one Nick Castellanos in there. But looking at the rest of the starting lineup, none of these guys really came up through the farm system. You know, the Tigers have done well to trade some of their prospects for, um, you know, for major league talent. And I think that that is, I think it's tough to judge whether the farm system is doing its job mm -hmm. through that. Obviously, you know, the Tigers are making some of these great trades, but at the same time, you know, Dave Dombrowski is kind of a wizard uh, when it comes to the trade market. So it'll be interesting to see how this farm system progresses going forward, especially if the Tigers kind of try to um, go off what seems like Al Avila's forte and building a little bit more from within. Uh, I know that he's kind of has a little bit more of a scouting background. Uh, you know, his father, Ralph, was a legendary Do Dodger scout. So it'll be interesting to see if they start to build a little bit more uh, with the farm system as opposed to going out and making so many trades. Yeah, and I think, it, like you said, some of that tale is yet to be told because it, it remains to be seen what becomes of guys like Eugenio Suarez or uh, Jeff Thompson and the... Uh, my goodness, the reliever whose name now escapes me. Uh, help me out here. Was it Corey Knable? Yes, it was Jake, thank you. It was Jake Thompson. Jake Thompson. Yes, because Jeff Thompson is pitching for them now. Those yeah, Jake names. Thompson was traded to the Rangers, and then he was sent to the Phillies in the Cole Hamels trade. 
So he's in Philadelphia system now. And still producing great trade bait, apparently. Yeah. So I guess, like I said, it remains to be seen how, how many of these guys from the recent farm system, for recent drafts, you know, what they turn into. But yeah, like you said, it, it will be more interesting to see what comes up in the next couple of years with hopefully a new philosophy, a more metrics-oriented philosophy of drafts in the first place. So all of that to look forward to in 2016 and 2017 and ongoing. So, all right, I think that will just about do it for a rounding the bases segment. When we get back, we will tackle our warming in the pen segment, and we're going to start sizing up the AL Central right after the break. Here's the 2-2. It's in the fly ball, right field. Deep and down the line, and gone! Victor Martinez with a two-run shot. Tigers back on top here in the seventh. They lead it 7-6. And welcome back as we go into our warming in the pen segment. We're going to be talking about the AL Central teams, kind of a forward-looking gaze to see what the 2016 Tigers are going to be facing uh, as they look to be contenders next year. Uh, first, let's take a quick look at the upcoming, well, wow, there's only nine games left, I think, in this uh, in this season. And we've got a weekend series coming up Friday, Saturday, and Sunday against the Minnesota Twins. Rob, we talked about this last week. We talked about whether you would rather have the Tigers go ahead and beat the Twins and spoil their playoff chances, or whether you'd rather have the Tigers go ahead and lose uh, and still protect that draft pick. I've, I've since rethought the position. I think I actually want, because Minnesota is only, at this point, they're only one game out of the second wild card spot. They're really close to being able to possibly get into the, that second wild card spot. I decided I kind of want Minnesota to win that. And the reason is because I think the humiliation is so much greater if they get into the wild card spot and think they actually have a chance and then get blown out by whoever they're playing. Well, they would be playing the Yankees, which would be kind of fitting, giving all the division titles they won and then getting blown out by the Yankees. <laughs> um, the Yankees were like their big nemesis during their dominant years, right? They were, but at the same time, doesn't a nemesis have to be kind of like two-sided? I feel like the Yankees saw them as a speed bump. <laughs> Okay. Like, oh, yeah, there's this team we have to warm up against. <laughs> okay, then maybe it's better to say the Yankees were like the schoolyard bully. I don't know. Well, they they kind of were during that era. Right? Yeah. So, yeah, for for that purpose then as well, that, that just makes my case even stronger. Go Minnesota in this upcoming series, and they're going to be facing off against uh, Matt Boyd, Alfredo Simon, and Randy Wolf. So I, I think there's a pretty good chance that, that maybe the Twins – go ahead and win some of those games and get closer to that wild card spot and the ultimate humiliation that follows. Well, it's going to get us closer to that draft pick for sure. Everybody wins. Not a very fearsome rotation right there. Because, I mean, seriously, let's face it. If the Twins did get into that wild card spot, I I have zero belief that they would get anywhere near. I mean, even if they did somehow luck into the ALDS, they're, they're not getting any further than that. No, and it looks like they would play either Kansas City or Toronto at this point, mm-hmm. uh, especially with the way Toronto has been coming on lately. They may actually overtake the Royals, who are only like a game or a game and a half behind for home field advantage in the American League. Um, so to see, yeah, it would be fun to see Toronto just feast on that pitching staff for a little while, but we'll see how, how that happens going forward. They still have to They still have to catch the Astros, who have uh, some home games coming up. They've been a pretty good team at home, so... If, whether the Astros collapse or not, it'll be it'll be interesting to see how that how that shakes out. I'm I'm fully rooting for Twins versus Blue Jays 
in the division series. I'm out for blood. I want to see it. The carnage would just be oh, beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. But let's go ahead and uh, fast forward to 2016 as we kind of look ahead to what the Tigers may or may not do in the offseason and the fact that I, I, I cannot shake this this echo in my ears. The comment that uh, apparently Mike Illich made to Al Avila when Dave Dombrowski was let go and Al Avila was brought on as the general manager and he relayed that Mike Illich you know, had made the comment, we're, we're putting the pedal to the metal, wasn't the exact quote, but pedal to the floor, basically. We're, we're going for it in 2016, so that raises all kinds of interesting possibilities. But what, Rob, really, what are the Tigers going to be facing in terms of AL Central competition? Well, I think it has a start with the Kansas City Royals right now. Um, you know, looking far into the future, I don't think the Royals are looking too great. They've kind of uh, maxed out their farm system a little bit with a couple of the trades they made this year. They traded a couple away, away a couple of their best prospects. But in 2016, you've got you know pretty much the same roster coming back. I know that the the news just broke today that Greg Holland has a torn UCL in his elbow, mm-hmm. so he will probably be out for 2016. Uh, if he has Tommy John surgery. But other than that, you've still got that ridiculous bullpen. You've still got that young core group of players. Um, and I don't think that there are too many free agents coming up for them. If if anyone is, it's not anyone too important. Uh, I know that Alex Gordon could be a free agent, but he also has a player option for, I believe it's $12 million that he has said multiple times he's going to pick up. Uh, there hasn't been much talk on that lately, but we'll see exactly what happens. Losing him would be a big blow. But overall, I still think the Royals would be the team to beat, given that they're bludgeoning the rest of the division right now. Um, Going down the chain here, you've got the Minnesota Twins, who have an excellent farm system. And although their season this year is kind of a little bit fluky, I think their run differential is still negative, despite having a winning record and being in the wild card hunt. Um, But they've got an excellent farm system. Their double-A team just won the the double-A championship. I don't know what league they're in. Um, And that's without Byron Buxton, who is arguably the top prospect in all of baseball and is with the Twins now. Uh, They've also got Miguel Sano, another excellent young player who's hitting like another Miguel that we're very familiar with. Oh my goodness, did you see, I just saw him on the, uh, on one of the Baseball America prospect lists, I think it was from last year, and I was, his, his hitting tool, I think they ranked, no, it was the power tool Mm -hmm. that they ranked, I think they ranked that at an 80. I, I would believe it, seeing this guy perform so far. Um, he's hitting 282 with a 399 on base percentage, mm-hmm. and he has 17 home runs this year, and that's in only about 280 at bats. Uh, if you take, uh, you know, if you take his numbers going uh, for a full 162 games, you know, that's looking like 40 home run power. So he's been an absolute monster for them so far, uh, and uh, and it only being, you know, 22, 23 years old. That's going to be that's going to be a guy to really watch out for in the future, and then they've got some excellent guys on the pitching side too. I know that Jose Barrios is a name that we're going to be seeing uh, in the near future. Guys like Alex Meyer and others were ranked among the Twins' top ten prospects this year in a farm system that Baseball America had fourth overall in all of baseball before the season. So uh, that's going to be that's going to be a very a very tough team going forward. Uh, the Indians and White Sox are a little bit tougher to predict. The Indians, like we talked about earlier, are losing Jeff Samarja, and they don't really have much in the farm system coming around. Um, you mean the White you Sox? Know, they, the White Sox, sorry. Um, you know, they may 
they may spend a little bit more this winter with losing um, some Arges money off the books, but there are a lot of holes in that roster. They don't have much offense um, yeah, that was always behind big, Jose Abreu. Right, that was always the big Achilles heel. I remember doing the kind of the team or the AL Central comparisons about the midway point and kind of seeing where the strengths and weaknesses were for each team in terms of starting pitching, bullpen, offense, that kind of thing. And that was the one thing that stood out to me is I think in the in the AL Central at the time that I ran the numbers at least, the Sox actually had one of the best starting rotations, you know, out of those five teams, but their offense was just so far below. And you think, well, okay, yeah, I know they're probably going to lose Samarja, which hurts their starting rotation, but if they could add some offense, maybe they get back into it? Maybe, but they got a lot of offense to add, and I don't know if there are that many guys in the free agent market that they're going to be be able to go buy. Um, you got Melky Cabrera, who's been hitting better lately, um, you know, and could kind of bounce back next year. You've got another guy like Adam LaRoche who may be able to kind of build on what little he's done this season. But other than that, you've got some, you know, pretty big holes in this lineup. They've got absolutely nothing uh, from their middle middle infielders offensive-wise. Uh, Tyler Flowers isn't much of an offensive catcher behind the plate. Their third base position is an absolute mess right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you've got Avisayo Garcia in right field who's not hitting very much and has almost no plate discipline to speak of either. So there, there are several positions that they could really stand to improve offensively, but it's tough to see exactly where they're going to get that from, uh, given that they don't really have the prospects to trade for, for anyone and that there just aren't that many options in the free agent market. Now, when we look at the Cleveland Indians, they were picked by a couple different sources. I want to say Fangraphs maybe had them as taking the AL Central this year, just you know, purely based on that monster starting rotation. And that rotation has, you know, to a large degree, if you look at the peripherals, they've they've come through. Uh, I think at one point they had three of their starters, three of their five starters were in the top five in the American League for strikeouts. I mean, they they do rack up a lot of strikeouts. It seems that when I ran those comparisons about the midway point, their offense was about average, maybe just a little above average. So certainly not a huge problem there, but their big issue was just an atrocious defense. So if they add some good defense, are they now in the conversation for you know contenders in 2016? Well, they've already added a little bit of def- defense in calling up Francisco Lindor, their top prospect and an excellent young shortstop. Um, you know, ever since the Tigers saw them last, uh, Lindor's has been hitting. Uh, he's been on the tear. I think he's a switch hitter hitting 300 from both sides of the plate. Hmm. Uh, we'll see if that continues going forward. But you know, he he's kind of their their big tool of the future, and they've got a few other decent prospects in there as well. I don't know that they're farm system is rated as highly as the twins but they've got some top end talent that some people are excited about um you know defensively they still have a little bit of work to do uh and they have you know a few guys playing out of place right now so it'll be interesting to see exactly what that defense looks like especially in you know places like the corner outfield i know that michael brantley has moved to center because they've had absolutely nothing from michael Bourne, uh who was really kind of a bust of a free agent signing and the, and the Indians still have to pick up the contracts of both Michael Bourne and Nick Swisher next season. So I don't know that we're going to see a lot of a lot out of them this offseason. So 2016 may kind of be another one of those hope and pray years for Indians fans uh, until they lose a couple real bad contracts off the books in time for 2017. Yeah, and speaking of real bad contracts on the book, 
Uh, that brings us to the Detroit Tigers, and it's this is certainly going to be a, a very important offseason for them, you know, especially as we're talking about some uh, potential for the Twins to be good next year. Certainly the Royals, I think, will still continue to be a bit of a threat next year. The Tigers have got some some pretty big holes themselves in terms of having to build a starting rotation uh, almost from scratch. We I think we can count on Justin Verlander, but outside of that, there's there's some question marks um, that we've covered in, you know in depth over the last couple of podcasts, just in terms of Anibal uh, Anibal sorry Anibal Sanchez's injury history and uh, whether or not Daniel Norris can step into that rotation and be you know a, a huge contributor. Obviously, the bullpen is is just going to be a continued issue. The defense was really good this year. They were actually, at one point, the Tigers were just behind the Royals uh, in the American League in terms of defensive runs saved. But a lot of that, when you broke it down individually, a lot of those points were coming from uh, Ioannis Cespedes, and I, I don't see him coming back next year. So even defensively, they may have a little bit of work to do. I mean, I guess as we review the Central, you talk about all these teams, where do you see the Tigers kind of fitting into all that? Well, I think that they'll be, I mean, it's tough to say right now that they're going to be a contender for the division title. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm encouraged kind of by what we've heard from Al Avila so far and things that we've seen from some of the young players. I think the Tigers' chances next season really rest on the development of young players like James McCann, Nick Castellanos, Jose Iglesias, uh, Daniel Norris, and and those type of guys. If they can get some solid contributions out of their you know, younger role players and still get, you know, a little bit of a bounce back season from Victor Martinez and Miguel Cabrera doing his usual Miguel Cabrera things, they'd be a contender. But that's a lot of things at this point to go right. Um, And they don't have a lot of money coming off the books to be able to spend that. You know, they have uh, a lot of money due to guys like Ian Kinsler, Cabrera, Justin Verlander, Anibal Sanchez, um, you know, and that doesn't leave them a lot of wiggle room unless the Illiches decide to really increase payroll and go into that luxury tax threshold. And that is the big question. As I was driving to Comerica Park on Wednesday morning with my son in the car, we were kind of talking about all, all these issues and batting around some ideas. And I just kind of laughed and said, you know, Mike Illich is not getting any younger and he really, really, really wants this championship. What would happen if in 2016 he just says, you know what, screw it. We're going to spend $300 million. So just go buy me all-stars at every position. I mean, likely, not likely, maybe? I don't think it's likely they're going to spend $300 million, but we could definitely see them spend a little bit more money next year. Uh, the big thing with the luxury tax is that it ha- if the team spends over, I think it's like $190 million or something like that in payroll, that they have to pay a tax on every dollar that they go over. Um, so if they're over by $10 million, they have to pay tax on that $10 million to the league. Um, I don't know exactly how the tax works, but I know that it, every year you're over the limit, you have to pay more tax. Um, that said, the the MLB collective bargaining agreement expires after either the 2016 or 2017 season. It's coming up soon, and it sounds like that this whole luxury tax thing may go away by that point. So going and kind of blowing that luxury tax out of the water isn't as severe out of the penalty next season as it would have been, you know, 2013, 2014, 2015. So we may see, you know, the Illich family just kind of say, yeah, screw it, and, you know, really go for it over these next couple seasons while they still have a lot of these guys, you know, Kinsler, Sanchez, and everyone under contract. This, I mean, this might be the year. 
that if it was going to happen, I think, you know, this this might be a ripe year for Michael Litch to do just a crazy old man thing and decide, yeah, I'm just going to blow the bankroll as much as I can. And, uh, yeah, I think I was reading that that font of all knowledge, Wikipedia, I think, was where I read that the, the luxury tax is supposed to be going away in 2017. So, like you said, if they did end up paying it in 2016, it would be only for that one year so who knows that could be a very in so many ways this off season is going to be just get the popcorn just get out the popcorn and you know have have a ball it's going to be great i think that will just about do it for our al central projection unless you had any other notes you wanted to add about the the central teams well i think mike illich has already kind of done his crazy old man thing so you have seen nothing yet we may be in that we may be on that wild ride I think he's crazier than you than you're giving him credit for, but I guess we'll find that out. Uh, yeah, so that will wrap it up for our AL Central preview for next year. We will obviously delve much much deep into that AL Central preview as the off season kicks off, and we are planning to continue the podcast through the off season. We'll probably even have some uh, guest interviews with our, our friends at. Uh, you know, the SB Nation sites that, that represent the Twins and the Indians and so forth, and we'll get kind of into the nitty-gritty then. So a lot of, lot of fun stuff to look forward to in, in, uh, in this off season and going forward into 2016. All right, time for a quick break. When we come back, the high and tight segment and how to get extra vacation time using this one weird trick after the break. Bringing a fly ball, center field. This one's deep, going back, Borges at the warning track, looking up, and it's gone! A home run! Amazing. How about it? First chance to hit 400, and Miguel Cabrera delivers in his first at-bat of the day. And into the high and tight segment we go. I'm going to answer this question. How do you get extra vacation time using this one weird trick? Of course, we are referring to Bruce Rondone. And just an absolute Charlie Foxtrot, if you catch my drift, as to what's going on there. The Tigers released this information. We were all sitting around the computer when it broke. Uh, the clubhouse was opening early or something. Brad Auspice wanted to address the press early, and he makes this just very bizarre announcement that Bruce Rondon is being sent home for the rest of the season due to lack of effort, and that's all we're saying about it. Thanks, and good night. Uh, what? Really? What? Rob? Rob, what's going on? Well, they haven't said a lot. At least the Tigers didn't say very much of anything on Tuesday uh, when Rondon was officially sent home for the season. Um, you know, as players have started to open their mouths a little bit and started to talk about it, um, the Tigers have sent Rondon home for what I believe is just a lack of effort, a lack of preparation. Uh, he hasn't been, you know, uh, whatever it is, you know, we're not really sure. Uh, has he not been, you know, showing up to the ballpark on time? Has he not been, you know, doing workouts or whatever it is that the team has expected him to do? Um, <laughs> have, but you seen, when you get, have you seen him lately? Yeah. Well, dude, dude, dude's no. working out all the time. You can tell. <laughs> <laughs> hey, he's, he's supporting the Illich clan by eating plenty of hot and ready's. <laughs> we, we would hope. Um, yeah, so it's, it's interesting to see the players that have said things like quitting on the team and not being around. Uh, Alex Avila said, to be a big component of the team, you've got to be here on the team. There's nothing else really for me to say, uh, which is saying a lot, I think. Um, yeah. You know, 
Nick Castellanos says, you know, something along the lines of, I wanted to say something, but I don't think that's my place yet. Um, Alex Wilson said he could see it coming. Uh, it's kind of an unwritten rule. You never quit on your teammates. And when you quit on yourself, you kind of quit on your teammates. Um, and then even Justin Verlander kind of said, you know, something along the lines of Rondon quitting. And he kind of used himself an example that says, Win, lose, or draw, you know you're getting 100% from me anytime he goes out and throws. So, you know, to see all of these different comments come out about Rondon, it seems like the players, you know, while they would support him coming back, I think, uh, at the same time, I think they're very disappointed in how Rondon was, you know, going about his business throughout the year. Uh, and we've heard things like this before from Rondon. A lot of the minor league writers and even minor league coaches have kind of spoken out since then saying, yeah, this has kind of been an issue all throughout his career. And yet they never specified what the issue was. I mean, there there was insinuations that it wasn't a quote-unquote attitude problem uh, along these lines, this sort of thing. But like you said, when you when you start to stitch together all the different player statements into this wonderfully ugly quilt, you sort of get a, a general theme. And I, I like I said, I don't think there has to be any... Uh, scandal or any you know necessarily hidden drama that nobody knows about i I see some commenters or people on the radio like well something must have happened that we don't know about something big something real big man i I don't think so i think it's as pretty much as straightforward as what alex avila said which is if you're going to be a big part of the team you have to be here i mean to me that just says he the dude wasn't showing up he wasn't showing up for whatever it was the workouts the practices the extra work um you know, certainly maybe not doing his, his homework on, you know, hitting charts and, you know, videotape and all that kind of stuff. It's it's unfortunate to me, Rob, because I feel like this is kind of the first year that Bruce Rondon has actually had a full major league season. I mean, when he came out in 2013, uh, he was pegged as the closer early, you know, before that season even started. It didn't work out. He got sent down to the minors. So he got like a half a year at the, you know, at the end half of 2013. And what I remember seeing in 2013 from Bruce Rondon was very promising. A guy who throws, you know, triple digit fastballs. He had done some work on his slider. It looked pretty good at that point. He was even kind of messing around with the changeup, I think. And he was starting to look like, wow, this guy could be a lights out kind of closer going forward. But that's all we got to see because in 2014, and this is the funny thing. I remember I ran into him at the uh, Whitecaps Winter Banquet at the beginning of 2014. He looked like he lost about 60 pounds. He was looking in great shape when I saw him. And thinking like, okay, 2014 is going to be a very good year, a very telling year for Bruce Rondon. And then he missed all of it because of the, the Tommy John surgery. So now 2015 is the year that you finally get to see you know, a full season of Bruce Rondon, albeit now coming off of an injury. And you have to wonder how you know how much... You know, how much did he get to a time did he have to rehab and really fully heal from that, uh, you know, from that surgery? Now I kind of look at it and think if he's not putting forth the effort and isn't willing to do the work, then maybe we're never going to see what Bruce Rondon could have been or could be. I, I don't I don't know. But I guess all that aside, this leads to the next question, the next big riddle in this in this thing that happened. Why in the world did the Tigers announce that? Why would you go to the press publicly and say, you know, we're hanging the scarlet letter on this guy. It's a black mark going forward with with how many games? Ten in the season at that point, ten games left in the season. Why not just say, uh, yeah, he's, you know, he's not pitching because we put him on an innings limit or, you know, he's got some shoulder tightness or something. And that's that's all it's going. Why would you do that? Why would you publicly shame him? 
Well, it definitely seems like the Tigers are kind of sticking with Rondon uh, for better or worse. You don't make an, un- an announcement like that and then try to trade the guy in the offseason. He's going to get, you know, teams are going to hang up on you and just kind of wait for you to release him, really. Um, so with, you know, with them announcing it, I was definitely blown away by the announcement before. Uh, the questions you asked there were a lot of the same ones that I raised early on when this was announced. You know, why are they doing this? Why haven't they just kind of glossed over it and said, oh, he's done for the year because of his arm, things like that. It it really speaks to this kind of almost being a last straw for them. Hmm. You know, this is kind of their last-ditch effort. Like, you know, we've tried all these other things. We've tried talking to him. We've tried, you know, this, that, and the other thing. And now this is the only option we have left. We have to send him home. We have to, you know, kind of publicly embarrass the guy to see if that almost wakes him up, you know, is a bit of a wake-up call and gets him to start doing the things that he knows how to do uh, or that, and that he's capable of doing and that he needs to do to be a successful pitcher at the major league level. You know, we've seen the guy get by on talent alone and, you know, in flashes. Uh, that inning, the, the, the finish to 2013 you talked about, I remember watching his last outing there. It was an inning against the Twins. He threw 10 pitches uh, and struck out three batters, and it was just one of the most dominant innings I've ever seen from the pitcher. Uh, and that's what Bruce Rondon is capable of. But at the same time, you know, if he's not putting in the prep work he needs to, you're going to see more more games like this season when he had an ERA, you know, of five, six, seven, something like that. Yeah, like I said, that's that's the depressing part about it, and you really hope that you know this this extreme act of you know quote unquote tough love in kind of putting the you know the humiliation around him there and and sending him home and announcing that they're sending him home. You hope that that's enough of a wake up call for him to really get his act together. Um, but I, I have I have a theory, and it's just a theory uh, that. In doing so, in publicly announcing it, like you said, kind of putting the black marks so that other teams may be less interested in coming after Rondon. I was talking to Patrick O'Kennedy uh, you know, from our site, our colleague, a little earlier today about how many options uh, Bruce Rondon has left, and he only has two left. So they can send him back down to Toledo two more times before I think the way it works is if they want to do it after that, he has to go through the DFA process, clear waivers, and that whole business. And so I thought that kind of makes sense, actually. If he goes into spring training in 2016 and still isn't quite ready and they still don't feel like that he can contribute uh, and they want to go ahead and leave him in Toledo for a couple of months at the beginning of 2016, that burns one of his options. Now, if he gets back to the club in 2016 and still has some issues that they want to work through, they're down to one option left. You know, they can't send him down um, after that without him going through the waiver wire. So is that maybe part of, you know, that they're kind of anticipating we might need to send him down a few more times and we don't want other teams to be able to pick him up off the waiver wire. So let's go ahead and, you know, do this thing, kind of put the put the word on the street that he's, you know, he's got some problems behind the scenes. Well, I think that's kind of one of the misconceptions uh, backing up a little bit with with the option thing and minor league options. Those are actually what should be called option years. Uh, Rondon can be option two Toledo in 2016 and if he's down there for x number of days i think it's like only like 20 days in the season then that burns an option year 
Um, and, you know, the Tigers can shuffle, shuttle him back and forth between Detroit and Toledo as many times as they want in 2016. Oh, they can. And yeah, and he'll still have one more option year remaining. So that's not as big of a deal. Um, but, yeah, it still is kind of something that they're going to want to watch out for, especially with bullpen arms. Those guys burn through those option years very, very quickly uh, at, the tar- at the start of their careers. Um, and you've got a guy, a young guy like Rondone, you know, who's been, uh, been to Toledo to Toledo multiple times already in his career. Um, so he's got, you know, two more years left, but at the same time, if he doesn't shape up and you burn one of them in 2016, um, you know, it's really going to be kind of, he almost has to, you know, kind of come out in 2016 and prove that he's the real deal. Otherwise they may find themselves in between a rock and a hard place come 2016, 2017. Well, clearly I need to do my own prep work on understanding some of the minutiae of how options and contracts work. I didn't. I'm mailing it in this podcast, so now can I get sent home early? No? No. Okay. Crap. All right. Yeah, I I learn new things all the time. So that just blew a hole in my whole theory, and you can just forget about that I even said it. It does – I guess that still raises the question for me, though, then, if that's not even in play – uh, you know, I, I heard some comments about the Tigers want to decrease his trade value, and that's the part that didn't make sense to me. Maybe you can elaborate a little bit on that because I look at it and go, yeah, he's he's actually not hitting free agency until 2020. It's not like, uh, you know, it's not like teams can forcibly take him away. If the other teams expressed interest, you know, in trade, the Tigers can say no. So what's the benefit then of decreasing his quote-unquote trade value? I've got nothing for that one. I don't know why the Tigers would intentionally try to decrease a player's trade value. Um, you've got Rondon, you know, a reliever, but he can throw 100 miles an hour. He's only 24 years old, and he's got four years of team control remaining. Um, you know, he's not going to fetch, you know, top prospects or anything like that, but I still don't see why you would intentionally decrease a guy's trade value. I don't think that that was one of the you know, the thought process that went through with the Tigers when they made this decision. If anything, that was kind of more collateral damage for them. You know, they're thinking like, okay, we're, we might kind of tank this guy's trade value, but at the same time, we'd rather keep him and see if this wakes him up type thing. Okay, but then you have the issue of the fact that Brad Osmus was the one who made this announcement, and typically I think you would see that be the role of the general manager to, you know, go before the press and, and announce a, a move of that kind you know it was kind of a big deal i suppose then if it's not an issue of hey we're trying to deliberately decrease his trade value for some unknown reason the other option there is perhaps uh, i don't know the front office is just not as good as it used to be is that possible i don't know and the fact that osmus is the one that announcement is like the the part of this that i'm most interested in Mm -hmm. why did brad osmus make that announcement um you know you got to think that both him and al avila are on the same page i'm not suggesting there's any sort of rift in between the two there um you know maybe this was like osmus's idea and he pitched it to avila um and they said yeah okay but you got to make the call i don't know why i don't know why they would do that and this is the the part that i'm very interested in and i hope that something comes out about this uh later in the year because anytime the tigers have had you know any sort of perform or not performance issues um off-field issues whether it's you know legal trouble like we've seen with unfortunately miguel cabrera and delman young in recent years um it was always dave dombrowski making the statement always him the one talking to the press and releasing what details weren't 
were uh, you know made publicly available and weren't in you know police reports or whatnot and i think that's kind of the difference between this this situation and some of those is that with rondone here there's no police report we have no idea what went on um but it still makes no sense to me that al avila wasn't making that announcement and i'm i'm really perplexed by that and it kind of has me intrigued and i hope that we hear more about it going forward could this have anything to do with al avila's obvious ties to the mob Maybe while Osmus is making the, the frontline announcement, he's out whacking somebody? It could be. You know, I don't know what kind of organized crime goes down in Venezuela and other those other countries there. Maybe he's trying to broker a deal behind enemy lines. I'm not sure, but it's very interesting. I got to tell you, there's a side of this that's just hilarious to me. The fact that you have a guy who is you know, supposedly or allegedly not putting in effort you know there's there's a little bit of a laziness issue to this and so the, the punishment is to send him home early it just reminds me of this episode of the simpsons i'll play the clip real quick the plant called and said if you don't come in tomorrow don't bother coming in monday four-day weekend yeah a four-day weekend indeed uh does that really work for somebody who's having problems getting to work on time and <laughs> just doesn't seem to care that they're gonna yeah go ahead and take a take an early vacation how effective mm-hmm. is that Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. I'm not sure. Um, you know, just sending him home early is one thing, but I think the, the the Tigers are hoping that this public humiliation and all that is kind of gets through to him. So I think that that's kind of why they're doing this, um, and you know, kind of letting the players maybe speak out a little bit on it too. I don't know if that's kind of an intentional ploy or if it's something that's happening, but you got to think that the the public, you know, the public announcement and all that goes with it is kind of what they're banking on wakes him up for 2016. The whole thing is just strange, stranger, strangest. Hopefully we'll get some more details on it in the next couple of weeks. I wanted to quick talk about one more issue that was kind of an interesting thing in the news uh, that I saw. Uh, a very bizarre thing happened. Billy Bean and Bill James actually like had a joint interview together. The, the two, like, the guys, right, who are the masters of the sabermetrics, and they're, they're rarely ever seen together, much less doing an interview together. Uh, it was the Wall Street Journal that, that did this interview. And there was one particular question that came up. Uh, the, the journal had asked um, both of them to kind of speculate on uh, what's the next big frontier in advanced metrics. We've kind of covered a lot of ground already. So, but, like, what's the next area that hasn't been touched by metrics? And, and Billy Bean talked about, injury analytics of all things talked about advanced metrics being able to in a sense he used the term predict uh things in in the realm of injuries and so now i'm kind of going okay i i don't really see how that works but maybe you do rob as a as a physical therapist so what do you what do you see is how does that work i think it actually is kind of the whole future the new money ball or whatever it is that you want to call it um injuries are I would say probably the number one killer of seasons. You know, you lose a guy for, you know, a year with Tommy on surgery or whatever injury, and that deals, you know, a huge blow to your team. Uh, the example that I'm going to kind of go back to throughout this is Marcus Stroman, a pitcher for the Blue Jays who tore his ACL in spring training. Um, you know, if you've been paying the paying any attention to other teams throughout the last few days, you'll notice that Stroman threw seven innings against the Yankees. 
the other night, just six months after tearing his ACL, which a rehab like that is unheard of. Hmm. Uh, usually guys are taking nine to 12 months to come back from that injury. Uh, and Grantland posted a, a fascinating piece on Stroman's rehab, uh, talking about some of the systems the Blue Jays used. Uh, there's one called the catapult system here, um, and a couple other you know different sports uh, kind of technology companies that are working on developing technology to measure things such like such as muscle activation and overall fatigue and uh, the Blue Jays and the doctors even monitored Stroman's stress levels because he was back at Duke earning his degree uh, while he was rehabbing and to see them kind of go through this and you know kind of buck the trends of you know, current medicine of saying, you know, you're six weeks past this surgery, you're eight weeks past this surgery, you're 12 weeks past this surgery, this is what you can do. You know, they're doing it more based on actual science. Um, you know, kind of the same, almost the same philosophies that Billy Bean and Bill James brought to the game in the first place. That's now being brought over to medicine. Um, and to, you know, to get them be able to push, you know, some of these athletes through through barriers that otherwise weren't being pushed through before to see a guy come back from, you know, a pretty serious injury, pretty serious surgery in less than six months is absolutely phenomenal. Um, and it's something that I personally am very fascinated by. Hmm. Uh, and I'm really hoping that this kind of, you know, we see a little bit more of this in the future. We hear more about some of these, some of these cases because it has, it has a potential to revolutionize not only sports and sports injuries, but just medicine in general. Exactly. Uh, to, you know, to revolutionize the rehab industry. And it's really something that I think that, you know, both in, in sports as well as in just general medical practice, that if you're not, you know, taking advantage of some of this data, some of these analytics, you're going to be left behind. Yeah, and you know, it's 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 a funny thing going forward because a, f- a few weeks back uh, when I interviewed Monica Michael, that uh, neurofeedback therapist, I know she's talked in, uh, in that interview in, in the past about uh, neurofeedback being another one of those um, sort of next generation things that if you if you have a well regulated brain, and that's what neurofeedback therapy does, is helps you know regulate it better, that the body actually becomes more adept at self healing, and and that would tend to I think you know prevent injuries in some way but as you were talking about even make the healing process and the rehab process faster so it's it's kind of fascinating to me that there's these different kind of trends going in that same direction i'm still kind of curious though about the 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 issue of analytics being being able to quote unquote predict uh injuries i mean is there a way that is there some data that that's available that would help kind of forecast this player versus that player is going to be more or less you know prone to injury there is, and I've read, I can't find it right now, but there is an article I read recently about uh, the Golden State Warriors in the NBA. They used some of these same monitors and, you know, t- uh, different forms of technology that the Blue Jays used for Stroman on some of their players, their healthy players, during the season last year. You know, they had these guys wearing, uh, I don't know if they're vests or, or whatever, something with their uniform that would be able to tell them, you know, kind of what their effort level is, whether these guys are, you know, pushing off from the floor as hard as they usually are, or if they're jumping as high as they usually are, things like that. And they're using that data, that, uh, you know, that to kind of be able to determine what these guys' fatigue level was. Um, Steph Curry, who I believe a, a lot of people will know as the NBA MVP last year, uh, I believe the, the Warriors may have held him out, out of, you know, out of a game or two 
during some kind of during the dog days of the season last year because they found this data that said, you know, he's really fatigued right now. You need to give him a break. Uh, the number one predictor of an injury is previous injury, but the number two predictor of an injury is fatigue or weakness. Um, and being able to regulate that and prevent guys from being unnecessarily fatigued, whether it's, you know, throwing the ball or running or what have you, that is really kind of the future in injury prevention. And I think that, it, you know, whatever team can kind of harness, harness this the best is going to have a huge advantage going forward. Wow. I mean, it's, that's, that's all very fascinating. Just this, yeah. You never know where we're headed with the technology and the analytics that we have. So it's kind of cool to hear someone like Billy Bean talking about this being the next frontier and something that he, in fact, is very interested in pursuing. And you talk about, you know, the next team that gets there will be the one that with the advantage. It may very well be the Oakland Athletics because Billy Bean has, has shown already with his track record, he's not afraid to kind of tread, you know, go boldly where no man has gone before. So. Uh, keep we'll keep an eye on all of that going forward into the future. Uh, with that, I think we'll wrap up the high and tight segment and uh, push forward into our end of the mob scene at home seg- segment. We'll take some listener questions. We're going to talk about uh, the fact that maybe we ought to send this player home early as well, right after the break. Swing the fly ball left field, deep going back. Cabrera looking up, and it's gone a home run. And into the mob scene at home we go. This portion of the show where we take our listener questions. You can reach us on Twitter with your questions at Bless You Boys, or you can reach out to Rob or myself individually at Rob B. What? Uh, I blew it. It's BYB Rob, isn't it? Your it is. handle. It. I don't know why we couldn't just settle on like a, a standard format for all of us because mine's hook slide BYB. And I think it's BYB Kurt, is Kurt mentioning. But yes, BYB Rob, hook slide BYB at Bless You Boys on Twitter. You can reach us on the site. We have Gmail. That's uh, uh, BYB Tigers at Gmail. Get us your questions. We're having a lot of fun answering these uh, week to week. And I think you guys are having a good time with it as well. The first question is actually not a listener question, but a question that was posed, more or less posed, uh, by Lynn Henning of the Detroit News. Recently put uh, put an article out there, I think it was on Monday or Tuesday, uh, boy, for, for a sports writer. I, I don't know of a single other person that is so obsessed with ballpark architecture. I, I think I, I envision Lynn going to the ballpark every day and spending at least two hours just staring in horror at the dimensions of Comerica Field every day, just like, I can't believe the size of this ballpark, because he writes about it at least twice a year. So he put out his uh, biannual post, uh, suggesting once again that the Tigers really need to consider moving in the fences at Comerica Park. And he talked about a couple of uh, different at bats, I think Tyler Collins was one of them. JD Martinez was another. A couple of guys who hit some very, very deep fly balls into that kind of right center gap where the fence is actually like 430 feet away. These balls traveled a good 420 feet and did not go for home runs. They were just, you know, harmless outs. This is kind of a, you know, it's it's kind of a big deal, I guess. Um, I, I thought it was interesting, Rob, that he he cited uh, when when the when the ballpark was designed he cited specifically the the intention of i think it was randy smith 
at the time that said what they were hoping to do was to make a very, very pitcher-friendly park in the hopes of enticing future free agent pitchers. They, they felt like they would have a better chance at signing some big-name free agents if they could say, hey, you can come and pitch in this ballpark where it's, it's super, super pitcher-friendly. What do, you, what do you think of that? You know, if the Tigers aren't, if the Tigers are at a disadvantage uh, because of their ballpark dimensions, I'm having a tough time seeing it, given the uh, the four year division title streak that they just went on. Um, you know, it's not like that they're moving the fences in the, every time the opponent comes up to bat. Uh, and I'm a big, I'm a big fan of how different baseball parks are. Um, you know, I I really rue the day that baseball stadiums are all kind of the same size, the same shape, things like that. And I find that some of these stadiums with, you know, kind of very generic curved outfields with no nooks and crannies to them, I find them very boring. Uh, And I really like Comerica Park's unique dimensions. You know, it's got one of the deepest center fields in all of baseball. Um, You know, it can be frustrating when Miguel Cabrera hits a a fly ball 419 feet. Uh, But at the same time, you know, watching a guy like... Curtis Granderson, Austin Jackson, Anthony Ghost run down a fly ball in the outfield, a fly ball in the gap. It's very exciting, too. Um, and I don't really want to mess with that, with those dimensions at this point. Okay. Uh, I'm, I'm on board with the deep center field, 420. That's, that's kind of a long ways. Like you said, that's one of the deepest center fields in baseball right now. But what about that, that, that power alley there in right center where it actually goes back out to 430 feet? I mean, that, to me, that's asking kind of a lot. Well, there are a couple other fields with deep right center fields like that. Um, I know the AT&T, and Park, a- and AT&T Park, speak English, Rob, um, in San Francisco has kind of the same deep alley that they call theirs triple, triples alley as well. Mm. Um, you know, it is kind of a deep area, but at the same time, I don't necessarily see a need for them to, to tamper with it. Um, you know, when Comerica Park first opened, the fences everywhere were just super deep, and it was kind of the the early version of Safeco Field or Petco Park, um, you know. And I think that moving in the fences initially, you know, transitioning the bullpens to where they are now was a good move. But now that the park has been open for 15 years, it's kind of developed its own identity, and I think that I wouldn't want to mess with that going forward. You know, maybe you get a home, another home run or two by moving in the fence uh, in that hmm. power alley there. Um, See, Lynn Henning claims in his article that J.D. Martinez would have at least five more, if not closer to ten more. That's like saying the Tigers would have ten more wins if Brad Osmus <laughs> wasn't their manager. <laughs> I was thinking that I, I really wish we had access to uh, some legitimate data, and I, I'm not sure that there is such a thing. Maybe I'm wrong. If somebody else can correct me, that's great. But to be able to kind of look up uh, you know, some of the fly ball distances you know, per batter you know, for this season and kind of actually say – yeah, that would have gone out for a home run. This person would have had six, seven more, whatever it is. But, you know, Rob, it's like from architecture to architecture, we're talking about ballpark architecture, which then impacts the way you architect a team. And clearly the Tigers had pitching at the forefront of this decision when they when they built the dimensions of the stadium. And they seem to have especially focused in the last couple of years on, you know, that, that, that kind of uh, Dave Dombrowski template of bringing in, you know, fireballing right-handers that are high strikeout guys, but you know that what goes with the territory there is they tend to be fly ball pitchers and give up home runs. And so you almost kind of think if they brought the fences in at all, you'd almost really have to rethink your strategy and how you architect a starting rotation and maybe move away from the high-powered, high strikeout 
and therefore high fly ball, high home run pitchers. Yeah, I think you would. Um, you know, at the same time, it seems like the Tigers have kind of changed their philosophy and how they want to build the other side of the team as far as the lineup. Uh, you know, when they were, you know, in 2012, 2013, they had a lot of kind of slow-footed slugger types, uh, you know, and it's tough to say who exactly brought that on. You know, Jim Leland was a big proponent of some of the guys like that, but as he left, it seems like the Tigers have kind of transitioned to a little bit more of a kind of speed and defense type team, um, although we're seeing a lot of crappy base running, so the speed part of that element isn't really working so well. But yeah, with with how you develop a pitching staff, I think the ballpark really does need to play a role in that. And the Tigers, for having a high payroll, spending a lot on pitching, you know, they're getting the kind of guys that I think fit well in this ballpark. Uh, and I don't I don't know if just moving in the triples alley, like you said, is going to make a huge difference in that regard. But if they make some sweeping changes like Lynn Henning wants and play in, you know, a stadium the size of a cereal box, they, they would really need to rethink their strategy. So, you know, I, if the Tigers are willing to do that, I think that's great. I just I would be personally against all of it. Yeah, bringing in the center field fence, say, you know, not just fixing that that triples alley, but even moving center field into a more standard, you know, 400 feet or whatever it might be, you got to believe that's going to add a couple more home runs per year to Miguel Cabrera's total, uh, probably to J.D. Martinez, maybe Victor Martinez, and maybe some of the guys like Nick Castellanos that, you know, ends up becoming, he ends up looking like a, a much larger slugger than, than he really is. It would just be, it would just have so many downstream impacts if they did that. Uh, it, I mean, from, from from the pitching architecture, having to kind of re, you know reformulate the strategy there to what it would do to the trade value of some of the, the hitters themselves. I mean, it's just I don't know. I I'm not a big proponent of change anyway, so I would be. I don't I don't think I want to see them mess with the dimensions at all. And, and like you maybe, said, it's maybe that's your new money ball right there. Is uh, <laughs> is changing your ball, changing your ballpark's architecture to match your current team roster. <laughs> so they change the dimensions every couple years. It's like you can kind of forecast where they're going to go with the next, you know, draft and trade season because they're rearranging the ballpark all over again. Like, oh wow! If, if Billy Bean has his own stadium, look out. Well, they already make you know retractable roofs, right? So why not just motorize the fences and then you can change it every year and just. Yep, this year the left field dimension is going to be uh, 200 feet. So we'll just see what happens. Craziness, absolute craziness. Uh, let's take some of our listener questions. David S. asks, I'm wondering why the Tigers continue to roll out V-Mart. It's a lost season. He's 36 years old and recovering from a serious injury and more time on the disabled list and looks tired and slow to me. Why not just send him home and have a healthy off season? Maybe he could go play video games with Bruce Rondone. I think that even though V-Mart is 36 years old and he's, you know, battered, bruised, and broken, um, I think there is some value to some of these September late appearances. We've seen V-Mart kind of take some better swings. He just hit his 200th career home run the other day uh, and has been, you know, hitting the ball a little bit better in September. Uh, to see him go down the stretch, you know, kind of have maybe a good month of September, even though he's had a relatively poor season by his standards, um, to have him go through that and kind of get back into some of these good habits, quote unquote, uh, is very valuable going forward. You know, maybe that doesn't carry over all throughout the off season, but you'd like to think that sending him out on a little bit of a high note, whether it has a mental impact or a physical impact, 
um, could have some sort of positive correlation with how he does in 2016. Mostly agreed, I guess. With nine games left to go, I wouldn't be you know, terribly upset if they went ahead and sent him home to go hang out with Bruce Rondon for the rest of the season. I'm not sure if nine games makes a huge impact, but yeah, like you said, it's, we've been saying all along with, with his recovery from surgery, you know, that what he needs to rehab is to play through some of these plate appearances. So it's, it's kind of, you know, it's neither here nor there, I guess I I would be fine with, with either direction that they wanted to go Uh, from Twitter, Detroit Tigers fans at, D Tigers fans says, I have a question for hook slide. Hey, that's me. What prospects impressed you the most in West Michigan during the playoffs and how can they help our club? Uh, well, I would say we're, we're going to talk a little bit more in detail about all of this in the next segment when we interview, uh, Dan hasty, the play-by-play announcer for the white caps, but just off the top of my head, um, Michael Gerber obviously was a, a favorite of mine. Um, playing in right field. He's 23 years old. He put up a pretty decent slash line to finish the season. Uh, 292 average. He was His on-base percentage was 355. Uh, and then a slugging average of, of 468 for an OPS of 822. Uh, the thing that, that stood out with him, he posted triple digits in all three categories. Did I say triple digits? I meant double digits. Double digits in, in the categories of doubles, triples, and home runs. He smacked 31 doubles. 10 triples, 13 home runs, which in this league is good enough for tied for fifth in the whole league. A lot of pop in that bat, a lot of good plate discipline uh, on defense. You, you know, he's at least average. And he, he, I think he'll be all right. Um, so that, that was a standout for me. Kristen Stewart posted numbers almost identical to that, and he did it in like half the plate appearances. So um, Kristen Stewart's another one that I'm going to be very, very excited to watch develop. I think he'll be back, obviously, with West Michigan next year. I, I doubt that they move him up. Uh, and then, of course, the third that everyone's been talking about is is Joe Jimenez, their closer. Um, the guy's only 20 years old, Rob. 20 years old. And he just locked down a freaking championship trophy. I mean, I, what am I doing with my life? I don't know. Anyway, Jimenez, uh, 43 innings pitched, posted a 1.47 ERA. If you're into the, the juicier stats, it was 1.62 FIP. His whip was point. 791 his k per nine was 12.8 and he posted a strikeout to walk ratio of five and a half this is somebody i see kind of rocketing through the system i'd hate to make a prediction on when he's you know eligible to get up to detroit but i wouldn't think it'd be more than a couple of years so i know you you heard some things and we're watching some of those stat lines too rob did any of those names jump out at you you know, video games are hard these days, and I don't even think that I could do what Joe Jimenez did in an actual video game. <laughs> now, um, you know, to see a guy 20 years old uh, doing something like that, I think that we'll see him move quickly through the farm system if he can Im- improve his fastball command. Um, you know, at only 20 years old, they may still ch- kind of try to slow hit play him a little bit, but if he keeps putting up numbers like that, he won't be long for the minor leagues. Um, I think another guy, another guy that I've heard good things about is uh, AJ Simcox, the mm. the shortstop that the Tigers drafted this year. He was only like a 13th or 14th round pick, but some of the scouts that you know we've heard rumblings from have really liked him. And whether he's you know kind of trade bait going forward or the Tigers hang on to him, um, you know it'll be interesting to see what he what he provides. He had a pretty solid season. Uh, you know we've heard good things both about both his bat and his glove. Uh, so hopefully maybe he's kind of one of those guys that eventually maybe makes his way up to Detroit. You'd love to see a guy like Joey Pancake 
get all the way up to the big show as well, just because Pancake is such a fun last name to have, and then there's all kinds of food options for the ballpark, but uh, he performed adequately. I, I did like some of what I saw from him on defense as far as offense. It was just, you know, maybe slightly above average, uh, and plus he played second base, so I, I kind of tend to think, I don't know, he might be blocked, you know, from getting too far up, you know, the organizational chain, but uh, he's one that I would I would say could potentially be a nice trade piece, you know, in a package deal to help us out get some other, you know, position player or pitcher or whatever it is that we need at the time. Uh, Chief Broom at Chief Broom wants to know, should the Tigers re-sign Rajay Davis? It'd be nice to see the Tigers pick up some sort of guy like that. Uh, he doesn't necessarily need to be burner like Davis is, uh, you know, a real speed demon. But at the same time, it would be it would be nice to see them find some sort of right-handed outfielder that really mashes lefty pitching. Um, another guy who kind of fits that bill is Drew Stubbs. Um, you know, he's had kind of a poor season, but at the same time has been a guy that has really hit lefties well throughout his career. And I think the Tigers with Anthony Ghost out there really need a platoon partner for him. Um, you know, it'll be tough to see exactly It'll be tough to predict exactly what they do going forward, needing a full-time outfielder for that left field spot, as well as a platoon partner for uh, for Goes. Um, but to see them pick up some sort of lefty masher like Davis or Stubbs or you know whoever else it is, uh, I think that that's one thing that they they can do, and they can do relatively cheaply too. Now I'm gonna I'm gonna challenge you a little bit on this because I had the exact same response to this question when I first read it. The first two things that popped into my head were speed and you know mashes lefty pitching but then when I went and looked at the stats I was kind of surprised that I think it was in three years with Oakland he posted a cumulative total of like a hundred and I want to say 116 stolen bases and then with Detroit he's in the two years he's been here he's posted less than half of that I'm not saying he's slowing down I'm saying he might not be in a situation where uh, I don't know you blame it on whoever the manager the general manager the philosophy of the team or whatever but he doesn't seem to be getting the opportunities necessarily, uh, you know, to play the running game a little bit. Some of that just could be, you know, where he's hitting in the lineup. If they put him in the, you know, front part of the lineup, they don't want him to try and steal a base. I know Brad Osmus, I think, talked to him this year about that. Don't steal first, or I mean, don't steal second when you've got Cabrera at the plate. He might be a little bit handicapped in the in the speed area. Um, and then the other issue in terms of mashing left-handed pitching, yeah, career, I, I looked up, he's hitting 296 batting average versus lefties versus a 255 versus righties. That's just kind of a quick, you know, way of comparing. He does seem to have some pretty severe splits. And yet, in 2015, his slash line against right-handers was uh, 266 batting average, 315 on base percentage, and 435 slugging versus lefties, where he's supposed to be better a 242 average, only a 294 on base percentage, and then a 447 slugging. He slugged slightly better against lefties than he did against righties. But overall, those numbers seem to be going the wrong direction. Do you think maybe part of that's just because um, after they traded Cespedes, he ended up having to face a lot more right-handed pitching and isn't getting a shot at lefties? It could be. Um, you know, with Davis in 2014, he absolutely killed lefty pitching. Had a 9.39 OPS against lefties versus a 6.17 OPS against righties, which is a massive, massive difference. Mm-hmm. Um, so it could just be kind of those one-year things. I don't know if having to play a little bit more full-time this year is changing that at all. Uh, if you remember, he did have to play a little bit more full-time last year after Austin Jackson was traded. Right. So I don't know if that necessarily 
plays out too much. Uh, and he did play a lot of, you know, full-time even before Jackson was traded, playing some left field after Andy Dirks went down. So it's tough to say what exactly is causing this year's weird splits. Um, you know, with him, he's still got great speed, but he is 34, almost 35 at this point. Um, so you got to wonder kind of when that tipping point is going to come with a guy that old and whether they want to get Davis or, you know, maybe a younger equivalent. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how they go about that. Well, I think if I remember correctly, they got him for two years at $10 million. So I think $5 million per year. I think I would be pretty okay with, with a similar deal. Maybe a couple years, five, six million a year, you think? Yeah, with Davis, I think that would be okay. Um, if you can get another guy, you know, a younger guy on that same type of thing, that'd be great too. Um, seems like Raji's kind of a good guy to have around the clubhouse. He's definitely kind of a goofy guy to have around, and that's always fun for, you know, our social media stuff. But Of course. So, so you know, I, I wouldn't be disappointed if they brought him back on that same deal. All right, and speaking of social media fun, this this question from Twitter, which Tiger has the best walk-up music? Well, I think that we have to automatically disqualify Miguel Cabrera. Um, his new walk-up song is hypnotized by the notorious B.I.G., and that is far, far, far and away the the best walk-up song uh, on the Tigers team. So I think that he's kind of just disqualified uh, from this whole this whole conversation. If I had to pick one, I would probably say Ian Kinsler, who has... Uh, you you were gonna go with that? I absolutely was gonna go I, with that. I do love the the whole Detroit tie and all that. That's a good one. Uh, Kinsler, for those who don't know, has "Superstition" by Stevie Wonder as his walk up song. Um, another one that I'm really kind of a fan of. Uh, I know J D Martinez has kind of gotten a, a lot of uh, comments about his song "Hustlin'" by Rick Ross, mm-hmm. but. Um, the other one that I, I'm really a fan of, I'm looking for it here, uh, is Anthony Ghost, who has Will Smith's Summertime as oh, his yeah. walk-up song. That's right, that's right. Kind of, a, kind of an old-school one for you. Yeah, and everybody seems to like uh, Jose Iglesias, because he's still using um, this, uh, Seven Nation Army, I think, by uh, the White Stripes. Mm-hmm. I, I'm kind of over that one, actually. I, yeah, I think last year's ADL, ALDS really ruined that one for me. They're doing it everywhere now. Every ball game, it seems like that I watch on MLB TV, somewhere in there the fans start doing that. Uh, no, done, absolutely done with it. And yeah, uh, Kinsler's walk-up music superstition is just flat out badass. It's, it, I love that song anyway. And being at the park on Wednesday, I, it was so awesome to have him come up to the plate and have that being, you know, blasted through the PA system loud and just like, yeah, you're cool. Uh, the one that stood out, he's not with the team anymore, Prince Fielder, but I loved that period of time when he was using uh, the, the tune from Mozart's Requiem, and he was using the Rex Tremende. <laughs> that was kind of an odd, like, what? That, that, no, that's actually kind of cool that, that you would go for something so out there like that. But yeah, my vote goes to Superstition, and I'll take that even over Miguel Cabrera's walk-up music. I'm just kind of an old classics kind of guy, so... One final question comes from somebody named Kurt Men Menskin Mensch. I don't know. Uh, at BYB Kurt says, "What did you guys do to finally get that Kurt guy to stop writing so much?" To uh, paraphrase Eminem from his song "The Real Slim Shady," um, he's locked in my basement. <laughs> Why? <laughs> Why is he in your basement? Uh, you know, I, I didn't get that far. You kind of caught me off guard with that one. I don't really know why, but he's down there. He's, uh, 
not writing blog posts yet, but we'll get him churning him churning them out eventually once we finally break him. I, I always thought the reason that he stopped writing is is because every time he would put a, an article out there, it would kind of attract attention. People would be like, oh, Kurt's back. And then I would always go to him and say, hey, now that you know, we're, you're back in the conversation, would you like to come on the podcast? And then he would just run screaming and then nobody would hear from him for like six more weeks. So I just assumed that it was it was our fault for constantly inviting him to come back on the podcast. So, but hey, if he's if he's locked in your basement, that's um, actually that's that's pretty effing weird. So. All right, that will wrap up our Into the Mob Scene at Home segment. When we come back from the break, we're into the seventh inning Kvetch. We're going to talk with Whitecaps play-by-play announcer Dan Hasty about how in the world he got this lucky. That's coming up after the break. Three now. Here's the 2-2. Oh, boy. Curveball grabbed the outside corner. Victor not happy. Pitch that he felt went around the plate. You rarely see Victor complain. Brad Osmus better get out there quickly. And welcome back to our final segment of the show, the seventh inning Kvetch. It's that part of the program where we kind of go freestyle and talk about whatever we feel like talking about. It's also a nice placeholder for those times when we end up with special guests to join us for fun little interviews. And we certainly have a special guest with us for the final segment today. The West Michigan Whitecaps uh, play-by-play announcer Dan Hasty joins us. Dan, it's been uh, it's been a hell of a week for you, I know, with the Whitecaps uh, taking that championship series all the way into Monday night's fifth and final game, the do-or-die game, uh, a close game all the way through. Uh, have you recovered at all? Is the adrenaline kind of out of the system at this point? I feel like Rip Van Winkle. I feel like I've been out the entire time ever since that championship was clinched. Uh, no, it's been great. It's uh, it's good to talk to you, bud. It's been uh, it's been exciting, you know, to be able to bring a championship back to Grand Rapids and to be able to do that the way that they did it. I mean, and I guess the first takeaway really is is the fact that the bullpen was so dominant, which is always music to Tigers fans' ears. That's exactly. kind of where it starts and ends for me. Now this going back to the, I gotta I gotta ask the question. It's you took over. This is your debut year with the Whitecaps, taking Ooh. over for Ben Chiswick, who put in I think five years. Uh, to my knowledge, now looking back, uh, Ben never even got to call a championship game. It's your first year. Not only do you get to call the championship game, but you get to call a winning championship game. <laughs> my question for you, Dan, is can I have your lucky rabbit's foot? <laughs> yeah, I think I should go play the lottery at some point today. I, uh, I've, been, I've been told that a couple different times. You know, uh, the, the last thing that I won was Pistons tickets when I was 12. <laughs> so this is slightly better than that. Yeah, maybe just, just a little bit. I mean, there's a lot that goes with that privilege, I'm, I'm sure. And, oh, my goodness, I want to kind of go back, uh, if we can, go back to that, uh, that opening game that started the season kind of let's go back and recall what that was like uh coming into your first year broadcasting for the Whitecaps what did you learn along the way what were a few of your favorite experiences with the Whitecaps during the regular season (laughs) well uh definitely opening night was a memory or the lack thereof for at least one night we were supposed to have our first game and we ended up getting rained out for the first time in 22 years so go figure and uh I I had been waiting to you know, do that first game for, you know, the entire time that uh, 
I had gotten the opportunity, and uh, I'd, I'd been hoping for that specific opportunity for much, much longer than that. And so uh, I, I remember the night of the rainout. Uh, I remember the first game uh, where it was uh, 42 degrees at first pitch, hmm. um, which ironically was was pretty warm considering the next week that was ahead. Yeah. Um, but it was. Uh, I remember that. Uh, I remember. <laughs> I remember being attacked by a goose in Midland, Michigan. <laughs> that, uh, that happens more frequently than you might realize, but yeah, <laughs> yeah. I was uh, I was a little too close during nesting season. I realized. Uh, let's, let's see. Gosh, you know, I, I I remember you know Joe Jimenez going to the Futures game. Uh, I, I remember how exciting that was for everybody around the uh, the ballpark. Um, I, I remember a dominant second half. I remember us getting, it was ironic how it all kind of set itself up, but I remember losing three straight games in Fort Wayne on ninth inning walk-offs. Mm. And I'd never seen three straight walk-offs in the ninth inning against the team before. And really that was the launching point for this team. They, they, they had that weekend and then came home and hit a dramatic home run late in the ball game. Came back and won. A uh, guy that had never hit a home run professionally hit his first homer to win us a game that night. And you know, then it was the the propelling to the playoffs, the clinching of that postseason, and then obviously every round therein to get all the way to the championship. And then you know, the icing on the cake, getting the title in Game Five, which really is the icing on the cake. And as you know, icing is usually the best part of the cake. Yes, I prefer the cake to be nothing but icing, but it just for, for formality's sake, you got to have a little bit of cake in there. And I, I look back on this season with the Whitecaps, and it, it just seems so unlikely to me that I think you were quoting the stat at the, the night of the championship that they finished the first half at, with a record of something like 33 and 36. Isn't that correct? Yes, yes that's it. So how do you go from 33 and 36 playing under 500 baseball at the end of the first half to you know, roaring back, not only making the, the playoffs, but getting through all three rounds and winning that title. Well, there really there there are three things that have to happen because to have a, a below average first half, I mean, this is a team that out of eight teams in the division, they finished sixth. So they were nowhere near the playoff picture in the first half. But three things really do have to happen. The first thing is that your players that you have have to take a step forward throughout the course of the season. There are going to be a handful of guys that you're going to have primarily in the first half and the second half. Although there aren't too many, but it's really a core group. The pitchers, namely, who will stick around from the first half to the second half, really took a step forward. But the the, the second thing is that you got to have that core, and you have to be able to have a successful core within. And, you know, I, I look at Mike Gerber, uh, I look at Ross Kivett and Joey Pancake as, and really Zach Shepard to a point too, of the guys that offensively stayed around throughout the course of the season. So those four really did have some talent, and there wasn't a lot around them in the first half, but you could tell that those guys had some ability. So between them and then the pitching staff, you finally got comfortable with the really a pretty set starting rotation. There really wasn't too much wiggle room. There five guys in that staff pretty much were there all season long. I mean, it was Ross Seaton, A.J. Ladwig, Spencer Turnbull, Jeff Thompson, and Fernando Perez. And then by the end of the season, Artie Lewicki came back, and he was healthy, and he started pitching his base his best baseball towards the end of the season. But, but between those two things, the one wild card and the thing that really separated the, the Whitecaps was 
the ability of the Tigers and the players that were sent to West Michigan in the second half. The Tigers killed it in the 2015 draft. They should be, a lot of people should be very excited about what the Tigers did at the draft this year. They had that extra first round pick. They turned that into Kristen Stewart, who was probably the most valuable offensive player for the Whitecaps in the postseason. And they also saw guys like Spencer Turnbull come through, but Cade Civic was fantastic for them. Batting average didn't exactly reflect it, but he had some clutch hits and some very key points. Uh, some of the later uh, top 10 picks, Dominic Moreno, Trey Tickle, guys like that really did step up. So it's those three things. It's taking the step forward. It's having that nucleus and then being able to add to it. And that's how you all of a sudden flip 33 and 36 to 42 and 28 and then pull a title out of it. Yeah, and I like that you brought up the fact that uh, I, I kind of had this theory myself, too, after that first half ended the way it did, and then shortly after that you had some of the guys from the 2015 draft come in. It really seems like they got a, a major boost, as you mentioned, from guys like, uh, I know A.J. Simcox performed admirably at shortstop, and certainly Kristen Stewart was the, was the pick of the litter. <laughs> you know, it's funny you mentioned A.J. Simcox, because we didn't even mention him, but he was outstanding, and th this was a guy that... I think a lot of people had pegged back to go to the University of Tennessee for a senior season. Tennessee had just brought in his dad, Larry, as a coach, and it seemed pretty much all but a foregone conclusion that A.J. was going to go back. Well, as far as A.J. told me, he wanted to go to the Tigers from the moment that he was drafted. So the Tigers made a big effort to get him to sign, and they were successful in doing that. And he really settled in nicely at the top of the lineup. So, yeah, to your point, I mean, the, the top and really the, the middle of the order, I mean, spots two, four, and five in the Whitecaps lineup were all 2015 draftees, and that's a huge bonus. And to have those guys play such huge roles, that really is the difference. And, you know, another guy that we didn't really mention, but he was somebody that came on in the second half of the season and doesn't really get the kind of run that he should, but Adam Ravenel did a really nice job for the Whitecaps down the stretch. He battled some control issues, but it's a guy who got some big outs at the collegiate level and then all of a sudden was thrust into that game five, and he had the task of getting a couple of very key outs, and, boy, he looked like that Vanderbilt closer that the Tigers picked up in the fourth round last season. I think they're going to be encouraged, and they might try to challenge him. I know they're going to send him to the Arizona Fall League, so I know he's going to have some time over there, but I think they can be aggressive with a guy like Adam Ravenel and moving him through the system. I wouldn't be surprised if you saw him in Detroit, maybe in the later stages of 2016. Ravenel is a great segue point to kind of talk a little bit about that big experience just this past Monday night in Game 5 of the Championship Series, because Ravenel played kind of a key role there. Um, and we could talk a little bit about that amongst other things, but let's kind of go back and relive that whole experience. I mean, everything from the stingy umpiring, the calls that just weren't going the Whitecaps way all game long, the, certainly the timely hitting the, to have them come back from behind and take that 3-2 to two lead. There was a bit of a bullpen roller coaster <laughs> along the way with Harrison Moreno getting into some trouble. And uh, as we mentioned, Ravenel came in and did a good job. And then Joe Jimenez came in at the end to close it out. I guess maybe question number one for, for you, Dan, is, is how, do you, how do you survive a game like that? period, much less as a broadcaster. <laughs> well, I think the, the whole idea, and, and I have had people, you know, saying to me long before I could put on long pants is, you know, in, in serious and stressful situations, you know, my, my job is to try to convey the action in a, in a clear and concise way and to not sound nervous and stressed myself. 
Um, that, so that's that's the challenge, and I think for all broadcasters is to to relay the information of the moment without trying to get too caught up into it, which is a fine line for some of us. I know for me that's a fine line that I walk because I like bringing a lot of heart to my broadcast. I like bringing a lot of energy. I like bringing a lot of passion. That's just how I am. So. I, I have to be very careful of that, but you know, to to sound nervous or stressed, you can't do it. Um, but even though it is a very nervous and stressful situation, and having watched Tigers games for many different years, I know that the bullpen is always going to get tested. So I, I always watch games with the expectation that it's going to come down to the bullpen and performing. And so it, it was something that I was kind of expecting when the Whitecaps scored three in the fifth inning. You, you notice at that point, okay, they've got a 3-2 lead. More than likely, if, if they're going to win tonight, it's going to have to be by the score of 3-2. to two. So the fact that uh, the bullpen was able to hold up there into the bargain was, uh, was refreshing. And uh, we, tried to, we tried to hold off on celebrating any big outs and almost kind of relay a, a sense of relief rather than celebrate anything and put the cart before the horse. Hmm. And they certainly did get tested that night. Harrison Moreno, as I said, who has been great all year, seemed to run into some trouble there uh, when he came into the game issuing a couple of walks. And you don't like to see the, the tying runs get on base and the go-ahead run get on base. But uh, again, a performance from Moreno, uh, you get some some key work out of Adam Ravenel. And then talk about Joe Jimenez and what <laughs> he means to the team and to the Tigers organization going forward, coming in in the ninth. Yeah, he did have a little command trouble, it seems. He put at least one runner on base. Uh, via a walk, but he struck out the side the rest of the way through. So let's let's talk a little bit about Big Joe. You know what's funny about him is that I mean, in dating back to his his playoff performances, I mean, he was unbelievable. I mean, he finished. He, he pitched in five of the final six postseason games. So this is a guy that was basically getting ran out there every single night. And, you know, oh, Jesse Goldberg-Strassler, the voice of uh, the Lansing Lugnut, said something interesting, and I completely agree with him. He said, in the playoffs, you finally get to figure out which players the managers actually like. Hmm. Rather than having to put guys out because they're supposed to, now it's time to put guys out because you're aiming to win rather than develop, which is a, which is a give and take in terms of minor leagues and how we have to watch games and we have to kind of evaluate differently. But you see it at this time of the year and you see really who the manager likes and who he trusts and to put out there in those key spots and to be able to put out a guy every single night, look, as a as a diehard Tigers fan, and I know you can relate to this, Hook, it's one of those situations where you want guys who are going to come up to Detroit's bullpen not just to be a contributor, but to be a headliner. Right. I mean, we, we think back to guys like Joel Zumaya in 06 and how much the Tigers relied on a guy like that. Or, you know, we, we think back to even guys that they brought in from outside the organization, whether it be a Joaquin Benoit or maybe first half Val Verde way back when he, when he first showed up, guys who were just absolute studs. Well, Jimenez, I, he, he's not there yet, but, I mean, he passed every single test you could have possibly given him. I mean, he, he's a guy with two-plus pitches at the major league level. He still has some fine-tuning to do, but 
this is the kind of guy that whoever's managing the Tigers in a couple of years is going to be able to run out there every single day. This is a guy who should have Tiger fans really excited. I'm looking forward to seeing him up in the big leagues because he's got big league stuff. And he's got a lot of swing and miss stuff. And not only that, and after what happened this week, he's also got a lot of experience in big-time situations. So, I mean, it's literally everything that a Tigers fan could dream of in getting a reliever out of. Yeah, absolutely. I, I would agree. And I've been kind of keeping an eye on him all year long with those same kinds of thoughts in my head of, you know, it can't be too long before you see him kind of climb the ladder and begin to start contributing at the big league level, assuming that they don't, you know, end up using him as a trade ship later, which I don't know why they would. You've, you've got a built in, you know, he's got closer written all over him. Well, look at the way, I mean, this is the way the Whitecaps kind of built their team this year. And the the starting pitchers got better as the season went along, but really almost every night, these games were six or seven innings long. And once you got into the back end of that bullpen, whether it would have been a guy like Joan Belisario or even Jimenez, and there were a couple other names earlier in the season, Gage Smith who did a great job, Gabe Hemmer, those guys have been since promoted up to Lakeland, they finished strong up there, Paul Velker as well, who went all the way to double A, as you know, but a lot of these guys really did kind of shorten games for this team. And and to your point about Jimenez, I was actually a little skeptical of him. Through the first half of the season, he had had a lot of issues pitching in big, tight spots. You know, he was was really good at getting a save when his team gave him a two- or a three-run lead. But when you put him out there in a one-run game with a guy on base or two guys on base... It didn't always work out for him, and I think he blew three or four saves in the first half of the season, but then down the stretch in the second half, he did not blow a single save, and that's the kind of progression you want from your reliever at this level. You want to see him take that next step forward, and we talked to him about it after the game, and and he said that he felt like he, he really did a lot of learning in the second half and took what happened to him in the first half and kind of built on it, and that's what made him better overall and really kind of made him the closer he was down the stretch. And he did seem to pick up some things in the second half, I noticed. It seemed like he was really mixing his pitches a little bit better, going to the secondary pitches. It looks like he's got a pretty decent slider that that could be a, a plus pitch. And the, uh, when he breaks off that changeup, and you're talking about like a 20-mile-per-hour differential from that in his triple-digit fastball, it seemed like he, he was really starting to put those pieces together. Yeah, it did, and I'm excited to see what he's able to do when it comes to that changeup because for the longest time, and this is one of the things that made other teams kind of start to read him a little bit in the first half, was really it was either going to be a fastball or a slider, and those are his two-plus pitches, and the changeup is one of those that's coming along, but as that changeup starts to get better, which it did this season, his numbers started to get better. I mean, who in this league, or really any league, finishes with an ERA under one and a half? I mean, he was spectacular for them. And it's really interesting to see because the strikeout numbers were sky high. Mm. He doesn't possess the 101, 102-mile-an-hour fastball, but this guy has absolutely filthy stuff and just talking to some guys around the league i mean if you're throwing 96 97 which is usually where jimenez will sit but he locates and when you're locating at that speed i mean how many times have we seen guys like bruce rondone come out and really always just kind of say in the back of our heads it's not how hard you throw it's where you're throwing it well jimenez is kind of the embodiment of that and i think that's something that should be really exciting 
And for those of us who enjoy our deeper dive style stats, the more sabermetrically oriented stats, to go with that 1.47 ERA, he also put up a 1.62 FIP, the fielding independent pitching stat. His whip, 0.791. And you look at his strikeout to walk ratio, it was 5.5. The guy was just absolutely, like you said, I, I thought I saw some command issues maybe with the fastball here and there, but on the whole, he was not putting guys on base. No, no, I wasn't. He was solid. And, uh, you know, the the longer the season went on, the better he got. And, you know, now all of a sudden, looking the way the Whitecaps won a lot of their games in the postseason, they were winning these games on the road and in tough environments to do it. And just about every single time, Andrew Graham was handing Joe Jimenez the baseball. So he had to go past all those tests along the way to get this team to this point. And in, in terms of getting big late outs, I can't think of anybody who got more of them on this team than Jimenez. Now, to stay on this the subject of who we're talking about maybe seeing uh, is going to move up to the next level next year, maybe even possibly get to the big leagues and be contributors in Detroit Tigers uniforms. Uh, I know this is kind of turning into the Joe Jimenez love fest here, <laughs> but uh, let's talk about one other character that uh, I, I particularly enjoyed. And oh, I, I know who this is going Yeah, be. you know, everybody who follows me on Twitter knows my man crush, Michael Gerber. <laughs> let's Let's talk about what Mike brought to the team this year. Well, first of all, he brought his gorgeous red hair because I'm not biased at all. But uh, no, it's funny. Uh, this is him, getting weird, uh, man. <laughs> he, uh, he, Spencer Turnbull, and I were always kind of uh, attached at the hip because we were defending our uh, our redhead brethren. Uh, but uh, no, but you know what, Gerber, um, he presents a, a, an interesting prospect. And you know, usually when you're picking guys in the 15th round, you're you're kind of just rolling the dice and. Uh, who knows? I mean, with, with this kid, I mean, he's just, he's cool as a cucumber. And that's one of the cool things about him is that nothing seemed to rattle him all year long. He never seemed to get frustrated. And after a very hot start, we saw him do something similar to this last season when he was in Connecticut back in 2014. A really hot start, kind of tapered off as the season went along. But he was able to keep his batting average over 290 when all was said and done. And to the extra base power from his bat is very intriguing. Um, the, the doubles and triples, I mean, I, I, there was a lot of talk about it, but he was the first Whitecaps player since 2006 that had double digits, doubles, triples, home runs, and stolen bases. Kind of kind of in the mold of a, of a Granderson, if you will, um, but just didn't have the, the same kind of speed that Curtis did in his prime. But an interesting player. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of wondering where the bat is going to take him. I think he's a good left-handed hitter. Um, he got better defensively as the year went on. I know he struggled with some, some health issues, some shoulder issues over the course of the first half and kind of regulated him to a DH role. But as the season went on, he felt better, and then he was starting to make plays out in right field. So he's going to be a corner outfielder, but his bat's going to carry him. I like I liken him to an Andy Dirks before injuries kind of tore him apart. He was a pretty solid contributor for the Tigers as a fourth outfielder for a while, and that's kind of where I see Gerber's career taking him. Yeah, because those numbers in the first half are absolutely insane. I remember at one point, he had his batting average well up over 370, pushing 380. Uh-huh. Uh, he had a rather unsustainable BABIP at that point, but it just seemed like everything he was hitting was dropping in for a hit. But as one scout told me, you don't look to the end result at this level. You look at the process. And what I saw in the process with Gerber, his, his individual at-bats, was just an eagle eye at the plate. And 
always making hard contact, and that seems to bode well for the future. Even if you know your your, your batting average eventually regresses, and he did finish at I think two ninety two this year, but he's a guy I think that could post numbers similar to that at the major league level. I, I think he could do something like that. I think he's going to be a valuable guy. I mean, look, how many teams would love to have a power stick from the left side off their bench? I mean, that that's a guy, and and who knows if that's the ceiling for Gerber? Who knows? It could be higher than that. But it, he seems. I mean, left-handed hitting is so hard to come by, and it, it's it's kind of one of those things with Gerber where I'm excited to see where he ends up. But it, to your point about the fact that he's able to really kind of excel during the process. The thing I like about Gerber is the fact that he's been able, and really we, we talk about hitting a lot, and he loves to come to the plate exactly look around the infield, see where everybody's playing him, and then act accordingly. I mean, it kind of changes his approach, not not as much to take him away from what he's comfortable doing, but kind of to figure out how he can best excel in that situation. If he sees he's got three infielders on the right side, he's much more apt to wait on a fastball and take it the other way or maybe drop a bunt down the third baseline where the third baseman has no chance to get him. So he's a very smart hitter. He's very mature. He's beyond his years in that way, and I think that's something that's going to help him as he goes forward. And before we wrap it up here, Dan, really appreciate you coming on the show and kind of sharing your thoughts on the West Michigan Whitecaps season in 2015. I want to just quickly go back and revisit the final call, the final out, and I'm going to play the clip right now. Here's the set from Jimenez, the 0-2 pitch, swing and a miss! Got him, strike three! This is Iowa, but I could have sworn this is heaven! The West Michigan Whitecaps have won the 2015 Midwest League Championship! As the West Michigan Whitecaps are now six-time Midwest League Division champions. Absolutely incredible. Dan, that's that's goosebump-inducing, that call. And obviously the standout there is the Iowa versus Heaven comment. And uh, I... It was it was so proper. It was just the right time for it. But I, I have to ask, you had to have had that in your back pocket for a couple of days, right? Well, when we got to Iowa, I started I started thinking, and I actually was uh, was just tooling around on YouTube a few days prior, and uh, I was watching baseball movie scenes, and I happened to land on Field of Dreams, <laughs> and I heard the Iowa reference, and that immediately sparked something, and my first thought was, that's perfect. Yeah, and, and so you know, and I'm not I'm not really big on you know Jim Nancyan type of puns, but I, <laughs> I wanted I wanted something that was you know cute, memorable, not silly, um, but more importantly, didn't want it to sound forced. You know, I I I, I didn't I didn't want to write it down. I didn't you know I, I've heard of stories of guys writing things down, but I just wanted it to be off the cuffs. So, I mean, it was just kind of, it was there, it felt right, it was, oh, it, it was. was hard to believe when I saw it, because I, you know, as soon as that last strike is caught by the catcher, and it's a swing and a miss, your eyes don't, you don't trust what you're seeing almost, mm. because you can't comprehend 
that it just happened. You right. know, you're waiting to see that it maybe it was a foul ball and it popped out of the catcher's glove or, you know, something happened that you didn't catch. But but no, I mean that that was the moment and then all of a sudden, you know, you see you see Jimenez <laughs> on the mound just freaking out and Savic running out to go go hug him. I mean it's uh it's one of the coolest moments I've ever been involved in, in in my career, and I'm I'm very lucky that I was able to be a part of it. Now, I think maybe my favorite moment after the Iowa Heaven statement has to be. <laughs> I swear, I hear I hear you off mic screaming. That, that that's that's you, isn't it? <laughs> there were a few other people in the uh, in the booth, so there were a lot of high fives and hugs all the way around. Did so. you have to rip the headset off for just a second to let out that woo? <laughs> <laughs> there were uh, there were some high fives and hugs exchanged up there, and uh, I, I did hear that back afterwards. And I'm not gonna lie, that was my favorite part. <laughs> Oh, so much fun, and I think that uh, that that should carry us Tigers fans, keep us warm throughout the winter, because the Tigers sure aren't going to give us anything to cheer about in the postseason in 2015, so it's <laughs> nice to have the Whitecaps do that. Great to have you on that call. Really appreciate you stopping by, Dan. Looking forward to catching more Dan Hasty moments in 2016. I can't believe it's already been a half an hour. I mean, honestly, I could sit here with you for another hour. I mean, it, it was it was fun. I enjoyed it. Thanks, buddy. And we will talk to you soon, Dan. All right, man. Take care. And thanks again to Dan Hasty for stopping by and chatting with us. A lot of fun there. Very much looking forward to the 2016 Whitecaps season. And just, I, boy, Rob, 2016 is just going to be so full of anticipation and promise, not just with the farm system and the Whitecaps, but what the Tigers are going to do in the, uh, you know, in terms of free agent signings and trades and then in the in the middle of the year, what they do at the draft. Uh, what's What's kind of the one thing, I guess, that you're, most looking forward to in that I mean, is it is it the next free agent signing is it the trade that they make is it a draft what's what's kind of got your interest peaked honestly i'm really kind of interested in the first thing they do and i'm waiting to see what exactly they do with brad osmus oh, the new yeah. manager. oh yeah uh, you know managers probably don't have that huge of an impact on the team season um you know it's tough to say that osmus is really the reason that they're so bad um he <laughs> may be a little bit more of a scapegoat than than we're letting on although i don't think he's really done himself many favors this year um but see who they go with here it will be kind of an interesting interesting way to kick off the off season. yeah i mean as far as osmus goes i've you know left my opinions like graffiti on the wall every podcast but i think i would sum it up with him saying he's not the scapegoat. He's not the, the the problem with the team, but he also is zero credit to the team at this point. And that's, it's as much as a reason of it, much of a reason as any to let him, let him walk and uh, try something different. So, all right. Uh, as the great, and now unfortunately recently departed Yogi Berra once said, it ain't over till it's over. So with one last tip of the cap for the old skipper, we will wrap things up for this episode of the voice of the turtle podcast. We're only one half of the conversation here. You are the other half. So leave your comments on the website post where this podcast is embedded. You can touch base with me on Twitter at HookSlideBYB or with Rob at BYBRob. Or just send us an email at BYBTigers at gmail.com. So on behalf of Rob Rojacki and people everywhere who wouldn't mind an early vacation, this is HookSlide saying, go ahead and cork your bats, but for the love of God, just don't get caught. And we'll see you next time on The Voice of the Turtle.